welcome to an extra special, extra wonderful surprise final episode of <laughs> Final Fantasy X here on Normandy FM. Uh, it is just the two of us, Eric Van Allen and Kenneth Shepard. Ken, mm-hmm. how are you feeling about this? About the end of Final Fantasy X? The end of X. Uh, fucking really good. Just, just a really fucking good end of a video game. It's, I was glad that we did the season because I was worried that it was going to feel kind of out of place. I mean, I know we've done separate seasons before. I know we've done games that are kind of out of what you would normally consider our wheelhouse here at Normandy FM before we did Last of Us. Uh, and that was kind of a, a section apart, but... I think the thing with Final Fantasy X has been it's been so rewarding to just revisit this game and see all the ways in which it holds up and has a legacy and really between ten and eventually ten two, which we'll be getting to in our next episode, uh, started to shape a major shift in fi- in Square Enix and the Final mm. Fantasy franchise. Like you can see a lot of ideas, a lot of uh, potential being brought forward, you know, their use of voice acting in, in mm. cutscenes and in gameplay is obviously a major one, but even just some of the ideas for combat systems, some of the ideas for character designs, some of the ideas for just world building and the way that they construct these games, uh, and, and the way that they're formatted, you can all see carry forward. I really feel like I've now gained a greater, understanding of say final fantasy 13 mm. after playing 10 and starting in on 10 2 like you right. can see the framework there yeah and i think the thing that's kind of ironic to me about everything you're saying is like yeah i definitely see how it was setting a precedent for what's going to come next but i also don't feel like the series has ever known itself as well as it seems to have known it at this particular moment in 10 and 10 2 because like you know, 13 iterated on a lot of these ideas, or 12 is like this weird outlier that I don't want to talk about because I don't like the game. Um, <laughs> but like, it feels like, you know, these games were taking pieces of it, but none of them really feel as like thoughtful and well-constructed and concise in the same way that these two games do as like this sort of duology, um, which makes me, you know, very nervous about the prospect of like a possible like Final Fantasy ten three, which could possibly happen one day. Oh yeah, and you know we'll, we'll get into all of that when we get to yeah. you know as we, as we keep going. But um, yeah, like like you said, it, it feels foundational, but I also feel like a lot of the uh, the games that have followed have not necessarily learned all the right lessons or taken the right things from it. Where they've done like you know there are certainly some things that I think they iterated on in ways that were very good, but I kind of don't ever feel like I've I don't I feel like I haven't played a Final Fantasy game that feels this perfectly like fit together these games do yeah it's i for me i i have a lot of love for a lot of different final fantasies and i think for me final fantasy is at its best when its individual entries feel almost monolithic in Mm -hmm. a way to where they're so their own thing and so drive for their own thing i think that's why this might sound heretical but (laughs) i really liked seven remake uh more than i liked what i had seen in played of of the original seven Mm -hmm. um and granted part of that is that yes i have not fully played all of seven by myself i'd probably enjoy it if i had back at the time there is like rose colored glasses and never being able to go back and play it in its original setting yada 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 (laughs) explanations here but 
uh, what I've loved about seven remake and about 10, and even about older games, I've gone back to play, um, things like, uh, what I've played of, of tactics through the advanced series. Mm. And then also, uh, what I've seen of the original tactics, uh, and games like what I've played of final fantasy six, and even like starting in on final fantasy 14, which I recently did, uh, when these games feel like they carry themselves in their world with just a level of this is what we're doing and a confidence in their step and the effort to put forward this new thing that feels bold and exciting, uh, that's when final fantasy really hits for me. And, mm. you know, when we look to newer games, I think I see kind of a struggle to do that in a way. 13 was definitely unique. Uh, and granted, I've not played the sequels, but uh, it, it seemed to me as an outsider, as a series that was kind of struggling with what its identity was going mm. to be, especially with who its protagonist was going to be and where that story was going to go. Um, right. And then you look at 15 and 15, I think had some incredible ideas, uh, but was suffering constantly at way too much development time, way too many changes over the years, way too many ideas. Uh, and so you have some of honestly, some of my favorite final fantasy moments ever are in final fantasy 15 stuff like the pity dungeon and the, the moment when they return to the city uh, after the time skip and all that, God, can you imagine if we did a 15? I know you would never let us do a 15 no. season, but, uh, although crazier things are happening. So yeah, well, look, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe down the line, down, down the line, but, uh, there's, there's so many times where final fantasy, when it does wield its budget, you know, cause that's mm-hmm. the other advantage that final fantasy has even going to 10 is that it's, this is a series that has Square Enix behind it. It has name recognition behind it. It has a, a minimum sales floor behind it. You know, it is going mm. to have money behind it in a way that even significantly budgeted RPGs like Tales of Arise and stuff like that have struggled to match up to. Like Tales of Arise, that was the big story this year because finally this Tales game looks and feels and plays like a big budget RPG when previous Tales games, as much mm. as I love them, definitely looks like they were on the B tier of budgets. And uh, even as we go into an era of, I think a lot of retro nostalgia for, for RPGs and, you know, a desire, especially in the wake of Octopath Traveler and, and, and other pixel art games and, and that medium becoming and evolving in, in, in its own way. And, and granted triangle strategy is one of my favorite, like one of my most anticipated, I should say games for 2022. Uh, I'm, I just love that there can be this series that can take gigantic swings. Mm-hmm. And I love it when Final Fantasy takes gigantic swings. And I really do feel like, especially the end of this game, which has so much more bonkers stuff than I even remembered <laughs> to mm-hmm. begin with, and, and the post-game of it, it, it was a game that took swings and a game that feels different and interesting and even somehow innovative 20 years later mm-hmm. there's stuff in this game that i'm going this is ahead of its time man this yep. is crazy stuff that's going on here so uh, it's been good to to go back and revisit this and so i also wanted to address i know that we've talked about our schedule a little bit here before and i'm gonna pre-warn you now our schedule for 10-2 is a little bit in flux we've kind of got dates locked in right now we've kind of got an idea of our schedule locked in right now 
but we've been a little bit more cautious in laying out the entire roadmap, especially for this season, because stuff evolves. And so part of that is originally we intended to have one separate episode entirely for the side quest and post game of Final Fantasy X because it is a robust end game. Mm. I will say that much. That being said, Ken and I are only human. <laughs> we, uh, and also a lot of the post game there there's i would coordinate off into two sections i'd say there's stuff that you can kind of go and do right away before you do the ending of the game and it feels like it's kind of gated to be around that level around yeah. that sort of okay you're at the end of the game you're at a certain power level go back revisit some stuff play some mini games do some things you're going to get rewarded for it and then there's a second tier of things that are oh, you have mid-maxed this game. Right. You have done everything possible. You have created the Uber team. Like, you are prepared to take on anything, and we're going to give you a challenge that's going to meet that head-on. And I think both of them are equally rewarding. That being said, one of them requires significantly more time investment than Ken and I have right now. No. <laughs> so we are going to mainly cover the stuff that we have played first up uh so the the side quest stuff that we have played which is mostly just the celestial weapons like getting the access to the celestial weapons some of the mini games that have cropped up in the post game or, or become re-relevant in the post game and uh the final summons the three optional summons that are in this game because not only are they very crucial in terms of adding more story to different characters they've met on our journeys but also end up becoming important at the very, very end of the game too. I think it's actually pretty rewarding to have all of them at the end of the mm -hmm. game. Uh, and then that second tier, we will talk about a little bit. It'll be a little bit more an abstract. Like I, I looked up the YouTube video for one of these because there was no way I was going to be able to grind to the point that I would be able to face this post game boss <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because it is too powerful. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, that, and, and when we looked at how much that was going to take up, also giving us the ability to start our 10-2 season a little bit earlier, we said, why not slam both of them together? So this is both a side quest episode and a finale episode. So all of Within Sin and the final boss and the ending of the game might be a little bit longer, but this is our holiday treat to you mm -hmm. is a super double feature. And then we'll probably have our next episode after this, we'll be introducing 10-2 some of the ideas we have and then getting started on that game. But the schedule is going to be a little bit in flux uh, and we'll kind of be moving goalposts and stop and start marks as we go through the season. Cause that's just the nature of the game we're about to enter into. Yeah. Yeah. Any, um, did I miss anything, Ken? No, <laughs> no I, I think you've hit what everything we needed to cover. I have like larger thoughts, about all the things that we didn't do and why we didn't do them, but I think we can just touch on those as we go. Yeah, yeah. I definitely have a few thoughts about the end game of, of 10 that we'll get into. And uh, to lay out some stuff, let's say some story stuff before we get there. Um, you know, where we are at in the Final Fantasy 10 story, you can kind of really go up to any sort of point in the end game uh, up until a very, very late point and still be able to go back, get on the airship, mm -hmm. go do all the post-game stuff. Uh, so that is one aspect of it. I think the cut that we're saying is basically 
after we've gone back to the airship, we've got access to travel around. We've had kind of the initial talk about, hey, we need to find a way to kill Sin that doesn't involve the final Aeon, break the cycle that has been created here, and then uh, <laughs> we can use some of the knowledge that we've gained, like, hey, Ject is still inside Sin. Sin has been shown to be a little bit more docile when the hymn of the faith is being played. So maybe the hymn is part of the key. Maybe that's how we get to it. Uh, and we do have some, a few conversations, I guess we sh we should just touch on a little bit that we talk with Yuna a little bit and, and kind of set up this final confrontation. Um, and, and everybody's kind of on board, but then we have freedom to explore, to return to the world uh, the first major aspect of this that I do want to touch on is we can go back to just about any major hub city that we want to, or any major area. There are some places that you kind of have to go to by way of going to a place near it. So like to get to Makalania woods, which we're about to head to, to do some of the celestial weapon thing, uh, you have to go to like Lake Makalania and go backwards into mm -hmm. it. It's very silly, but uh, there's also the ability to either punch in passwords that you have found around the world to open up different treasure chests uh, that you get by translating Albed uh, from different spheres. I think one of them is at the beginning of the game. Uh, there's another one that's near Besaid, and I think there's one in Mushroom Rock. And that last one is really the only important one because the other ones just kind of give you okay-ish items uh but the last one the mushroom rock one is where you get riku's celestial weapon which is mm. the the god hand which looks sick it is mm. such a cool looking celestial weapon i think she and waka really went out on getting the cool celestial yep. weapons i like these um, too yeah yeah they all look it's, pretty cool they, they're all cool but every time i see waka's i'm like that was a prize for a blitzball tournament mm. <laughs> that was that doesn't seem right uh but uh there, there's like additional areas that you can go to by just scanning is the best way of putting it uh really the only major one of note uh comes from uh going to the omega ruins which is an end games thing that we'll talk about later uh but there is kind of some level of hunting around the map that you can do. Uh, and it's also a little precursor to what will become a very important piece of the UI and piece of the user experience when we get into Final Fantasy X-2, which you are using the airship right off the bat in that mm. game, uh, which is interesting and I think is is kind of neat in a way to bridge the gap between the two games in that way. Uh, but first, got to get some celestial weapons. So we head to Makalania Woods, where uh, we we have to get the cloudy mirror, and I always forget how we get the cloudy mirror. It's, uh, it's um, um, a fucking. It, it's a reward for the uh, what the fuck is it called? The the creature capture. Oh shit. no no is no, it no. not? No. So the way we get it, and this is how we're going to segue into. Oh, I'm getting the mixed up stuff. with how you get units. No yeah. Mind. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're don't worry. We're gonna be doing that a lot this episode. <laughs> um. To get the cloudy mirror, you have to find the chocobo person, the chocobo trainer in the calm lands and get on a chocobo, which I think you have to 
do the chocobo training stuff with her first, which is a lot of uh, you um, know, I did because I didn't do it. Okay, uh, I just remember having to do those, but I'm also might have just done them because I felt like doing them. Uh, it, it's a lot of like dodge things. I will just say that while I like riding a chocobo in this game, and I like some of the chocobo races the ones in the calm lands specifically where you're just kind of constantly running forward and trying to dodge things left and right are so frustrating because mm. there is like no ability to understand depth in their camera perspectives and it just feels not great. And so that is why I did not get Tidus's fully decked out celestial weapon is because uh, you have to win the chocobo trainer thing and get a score that is zero or negative seconds by popping enough balloons to take time mm. off that much. And it is just frustrating. Yeah. But uh, if we get on a chocobo, we can take a little side path to head to Remium Temple. If you remember earlier when we met Belgamine in the calm lands, she mentioned that she would be going to Bremium temple to hang out and that we should come find her when we feel ready to face her final test. Uh, before we do that, we can find basically a mythical famed Chocobo waiting there to race. Uh, and then you have a race to the bottom where uh, at the very, very bottom is the cloudy mirror and then there's a bunch of other treasure chests along the path. And the idea is that you're supposed to try and pick up treasure while also beating the chocobo mm -hmm. down there to get the treasure. I'm going to be honest with you. I just ran straight for the cloudy mirror and yeah, just picked I, it up. I did it twice. One, to get the cloudy mirror, and then two, to get um, something else that we'll talk about later. Because like, there was specifically something that I wanted to get, like an, an item that you can only get um, here, to my knowledge. Um, oh, what, which one is that? I mean, we can just... I feel like we it's can It's the... Uh, let me double-check the name of it. Is it one of the sigils, or... No, or... it was the um, the Wings to Discovery. Oh! Which are oh, a um, okay. consumable thing. And, uh... Yeah. yeah. No, those are that. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, I did not think of that. I also did not have Riku's Overdrive for the entirety of the endgame, but we'll get there. Mm. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, so we do the Chocobo thing, we pick up the mirror, then we head to Makalania Woods, and we do some weird side quests that I still really don't understand it's, to this day that just involves a, a woman and a husband and a child, and they keep, like, losing each other in the woods. You have to keep finding them and telling them to go back to the entrance, and yeah. it's just bizarre. The weird, the weird thing about it is, okay, so, like, you would do that, and then there's this it ends in this point with this kid that's like, oh, there's something here, and then the game is like, use the cloudy mirror, and then it turns into the celestial mirror. The weird thing oh. about it is, it's just, it feels like very of an age where people found out how to do, like, not even side quests, but like, found secrets in games that were not telegraphed in any meaningful way, in any way that made any, like, real sense in the world, or the game, just like the game generally. Because it, it feels, like, really arbitrary in a way that I don't think is yeah. clever or meaningful. It just feels, like, obfuscated in a way that is not really how video games are made. And that that is, like, you know, an example of this game being of a different era where I think, like, broadly I think the game has aged very well. I just think there are little things like that where I'm like, that comes from when people thought it was really cool to dump hours of their lives trying to find these, like, really obscure, minuscule things um, into video games. Where that would have been like an actual quest line that was telegraphed to you in like Final Fantasy 15, like something that would have made a, like a real, genuine attempt to like 
make you understand that these two seemingly unrelated things are actually related. Because, like, you know, you get this one, you get these two halves of this, you know, really pivotal item in two completely different spaces of the world that mm-hmm. don't seem to be connected at all. So, yeah, it's just, like, when I got to that, I was like, that was, that was dumb. That was meaningless. The, the thing about the Celestial Weapons is that they are nigh game-breaking, especially for certain characters. Mm. Like, they... Some of them, I think, are... You know, it's worth getting them any no matter what because the abilities they give you between... Uh, even just having triple AP on them is so worth it that it's, you know, why would you not get it? But it's some of them literally, as, as I will talk about when we get into our actual like end game content ended up being pivotal for me in terms of like my end game strategy and beating a lot of these bosses a lot easier than it would have been if I had tried to fight them under normal circumstances. Mm. And so I do appreciate that like Final Fantasy has these things that are secret or hidden. You know, Pityos Dungeon was one of those in Final Fantasy 15 where you had to just kind of cruise around and see that there was a runway or, you know, just figure it out or hear about it. But the other part of me is like, this would totally be a line on the back of the Final Fantasy 10 Prima or Brady games strategy guide. That's like, Hey, check out this sick guide. We tell you how to get all the celestial weapons mm. and stuff like that. And and it definitely is of that era where, um, and that's not a right. diss on guides writers. That's a diss on just like, this thing is so off the beaten path and it is, it feels really good to get these weapons. Like it's, mm. it feels like an accomplishment, especially for how hard you have to work for some of them. Yeah. Uh, so once you do start getting these, you'll pick up, basically there's three components. There's the weapon itself, which is just garbage on its own. Mm. It's actually detrimental to use it because right. I think in its base form, you won't earn any experience. Yeah. Uh, and you have to infuse it with the the sigil and the stone, I think it is, or the sigil and the crest, yeah. Uh, to to power it up to its full strength. And so I'll I'll say right now, the only celestial weapon I ended this game fully powered up with was Yuna's because yep. you get it pretty naturally as part of her part of the progression through the stuff we're doing. It's yep. it's not hard to run into that stuff. Whereas like well, the Walkers has shit to do with like the actual Blitzball yeah like, game and like no. And, and like, that one, not worth that one I here. like. That one I like because it makes sense for mm-hmm. Waka to have all of his stuff tied to Blitzball and all that. Right. I'm like, okay, that's that's a cool thing. But then Lulu's 200 consecutive lightning dodges in the Thunder Plains. Yeah. Like, <laughs> even when I found a way to cheese it, there's like a very specific spot where you can manually trigger uh, a lightning strike. And so you can kind of just get into a routine, like get into a, a repetition, a loop of dodging strikes and you know when it's coming. So it's easier to dodge it. Uh, I still got maybe it's like 43, 49 or something like that. And then just wasn't fully paying attention or like missed the input. And that was, you know, 50 attempts down the drain. So I was like, great. I don't want to do this 200 times right. and you know, it's going to be more than 200 cause you're not going to get perfect the first time. So I was like, cool. As much as I would like to have 
one MP spells on Lulu, I'm going to find a way to break this game in a different way and still mm. get what I want. <laughs> and, mm. um, so that's the celestial weapons. I, I think some of them are cool. Some of them are ridiculously difficult to get. Uh, like Blitzball is one thing. You can eventually get to the point where your Blitzball team is so stupidly good that you will beat every team in the league. Uh, and at this point in the game, you have so much gill that it's not hard to just keep everyone on contract and build the super team. Uh, I think Orin's is one of the more frustrating ones to get alongside Lulu's because Orin's... No, I'm thinking of Orin's overdrives that require all the, the Broska and Jex spheres, right? Um, I, mm, I actually don't know about that offhand. I think, I think Orin, because I remember I got an overdrive for Orin because I had picked up a couple Jekt and Broska <laughs> spheres while I was doing this section. And uh, some of them are in areas that are difficult to get to in the end game, let's say, mm. which we'll talk about later. Uh, and then other ones like Yuna's are even to some extent Titus's, which just requires you to beat that mind numbing Chocobo thing. But you can, I think eventually get there. If you just put your mind to it, uh, those and I think Riku's involves a whole side quest involving the Cactar stones that you find throughout the game, uh, but I didn't really want to undertake that, so I I skipped out on that one. Yeah. They're cool rewards if you want to put the time in, but they are very time consuming and right. often in ways that involve mini games of some kind. Engaging with like the worst parts of the fucking game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I will say this is a good time to now open up, talk about the monster arena, because that is an aspect of the game that gets introduced in the Calm Lands, but uh, I think really becomes important uh, at the end of the game, because not only do you get some of the items that you need for uh, celestial weapons and things like that through uh, doing the monster arena stuff, so equipping all of your characters with catcher weapons, and then... uh, killing enemies with them i didn't realize that you had to kill them with the weapon and not with Mm. a spell so i had lulu holding a a capture weapon but then used a spell that did not count as a capture so i was like great so i Mm. have to all these enemies that are super resistant to physical i'm gonna have to armor break them and stuff that's great Mm. uh but that is like grinding that stuff and getting that stuff gives you a lot of really good resources like I think that was where I got my big stockpile of X potions and mega potions for mm. the end game alongside some yeah. of the Belgamine stuff. We're yeah. Into. Like th- that was something that I had forgotten. It was that, like some, a lot of this in game stuff does give you just like supplies that are like good to have. Like, even if it's not like these game breaking weapons, it was just like, Oh, I suddenly have like, you know, a fucking excess of X potions mm-hmm. at this point, which is wonderful. It's mm-hmm. so good to have, uh, just, you know, because we're going into the area of the game where you want to be using all of your resources. And suddenly now you're, say your character who's a healer who might suddenly become a DPS character for you doesn't have <laughs> to just be a healer anymore. Mm-hmm. And maybe the character who's really only good for hasting your team can now serve as a healer because they can just use items all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, <laughs> I did also grind out the you have to capture four of each drake enemy in the game of which there's five so it's like 20 monsters total but it gives you a bunch of i think they're called spelling salts but you can use them to synthesize a no encounter armor Mm. and i'm just going to be honest with you i use that a lot 
in the end of this game, even mm-hmm. playing through. I tried to have at least one normal encounter with most of the enemies inside Sin, but outside of that, like I used the no encounter armor to run into the Omega ruins and grab the last Elbed primer in there and then run back out <laughs> without having to fight Solid. anything in there. Uh it was it was it was nice. It was nice having that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Cause this is a section of the game I think where if you are at the right level or just have the right things, you are ready to beat the game. But there are some enemies in Sin, for example, that will just destroy you with yeah. no hesitation. That and King Behemoth is a jerk. Yeah, and it's, it's also just like, I got to the point where I started fleeing from everything after, at a certain point because it's not even that I can't beat these enemies. It's just they were very time-consuming and resource-intensive mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. like, in a lot of the game isn't. Um, which isn't a bad thing per se, but it's just like something I was, I became very keenly aware of as I was trying to navigate within Sin, and was getting constantly roadblocked and stopped by shit. I had to spend like you know five five or so minutes per fight actually like really engaging with systems to make sure that I could take them down. Right, and at this point, you really only want to be doing that if you're grinding, if yeah. you're like intentionally getting levels to get your stats higher, mm-hmm. which is kind of if you want to get into the real real end game of this. Uh, you know, that tier two of end game stuff, you do start have to, you do have to start looking at uh, filling out the sphere grid. So filling in all those blank nodes, uh, getting everyone their max stats, calculating what that's going to take, because I think luck has a max of like 150 or 250 or something like that. So you have to kind of calculate out, exactly how many spheres you need for everyone to get a complete sphere grid and all that and then max all the ap out to get there with your triple ap and it's a lot Mm. and that being said the reason someone would do that is because the tier two of endgame bosses here are just absolutely bonkers right um and i would say there are the higher level ones so you have penance who is the super ultra big daddy of endgame bosses who you only get by beating a bunch of other endgame bosses. And that one's kind of cool lore wise. Cause I believe the lore is that it's the final Aeon of there's, there's a part of the call lands where you could kind of go over and look at a giant crack in the earth and someone there will tell you, Hey, this is where so-and-so fought sin and they used an ability that was so powerful that it cracked the earth here Mm. and it's just been here ever since. And I think the lore is that penance is that Aeon kind of like still lingering in the world. And so Mm. you, you kill it, but this, I watched the YouTube fight for this one and it is brutal. It's so even with characters, you know, limit break. So doing over nine, 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 nine damage, uh, acting as fast as possible because they all have the um, zero or one MP cost running and they're using quick hit over and over again to just use as many auto attacks as they can. Plus auto haste on everybody. Plus uh, the ability to, I think it's auto potion and the person only had X potions in their inventory. So basically every time they got hit, they auto refilled their health. Even with that, this thing could still wipe. This thing could still take you all out. And it was just brutal. And it's yeah. it's cool. I will also say 
it sucks that the platinum for this game is locked behind beating stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really that, that's, a, that's a Final Fantasy problem because I I distinctly remember that becoming an issue for me with Lightning Returns because I had done everything else in that game except beaten what is I guess like the equivalent boss because like you know every Final Fantasy game like they have you know post game or not non post game but like uh, end game bosses that are like you know incredibly tough like worse than anything that you're going to have to beat in the main path and the one for Lightning Returns I remember was the only roadblock I had in that game and. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have the platinum for that game, despite getting every other trophy. It's just that motherfucker I couldn't beat. It's, uh, I like that stuff. I think that stuff is interesting, but it's also something that I personally just don't engage with. Same with the Omega Ruins. Uh, mm-hmm. I ran in there to get my Albed Primer and ran back out. But there is an interesting boss, lore-wise, like someone who was so against Yevon that they entombed him forever and he's just been growing more and more powerful and he is the omega weapon and all that mm-hmm. uh it's cool it's interesting it's also just a lot to yeah. tackle that stuff and so i kind of avoided that thing but <laughs> some of them are unavoidable and they are the dark aeons which mm-hmm. is maybe the most controversial addition as part of the international version of final fantasy 10 because if i recall right the original North American version does not have the Dark Aeons in it. Right. Uh, the Dark Aeons, if you are unfamiliar, if you only ever played the original North American version and have not played the the re-release, the the remaster that has that uses the international version, the Dark Aeons are these Bevel summoners who kind of go to all the areas where there is a temple and kind of lie in wait for you to show up and then ambush you with super powered versions of the different summons from throughout the game. So the one that you are probably most likely to run into is dark Vale for, mm. because uh, that's back at Besaid. If you go to Besaid, you will run into dark Vale for, and that one is also like you run into the area and it starts the battle. It's basically unavoidable. If you walk into the area, unlike another one, that's pretty common to run into, which is the dark, uh, Magus sisters and that one is on the Jose high road and is actually super scary because two summoners show up behind you and one in front of you and they start chasing you. And if they catch you, it initiates the battle with them. So you have to run away from them. And it's actually, I like that one a lot because it's like, I was legitimately terrified of getting caught by them. <laughs> and, uh, it's the Magus sisters who we will talk about in a little bit, but are basically considered to be potentially the strongest summon in the game. Uh, just terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I think conceptually they're cool, but also it basically locks off major yep. portions of the game for you to revisit. And most importantly, uh, that is why at the beginning of the game, I ran back into Besaid village and got Dark Veil for mm. second overdrive or Veil for second overdrive right away because if you don't do that and you progress to the end of the game and you try to go back to Besaid, you have to beat Dark Veil for to get it. <laughs> so yeah. you have to get it early. Uh, also, there are like Braska and Jack spheres that only open up after you beat the Spheromorph in Makalania, but then that means you have to basically back travel across the entire world to get them before you get to the point where all the Bevel summoners are going to distribute out into the world mm. uh, or else you will have to start beating Dark Aeons and these Dark Aeons are also very powerful like they like, were wiping unfair, my team like unfair like levels of yeah it's like it, like and, and you're saying all this like 
it if it is interesting in concept. It just feels like the impl- the actual implementation of it just feels like it's the, like there are a lot of oversights and into how it is going to gate off just like the normal Final Fantasy X experience. Because like like you said, like there's shit that like if you even if you did not know thirty hours prior that you needed to get this thing that you needed to go back for, you could potentially miss out on you can you can miss out on anima. Like because you have to have that shit done before you go to that temple. Right. And you yeah. can't do that if you've got fucking super boss that is nearly unbeatable to most people that would have naturally I, I, I guess like naturally progressed through the game to that point. And so it's one of the things like you're saying you have to go like start min maxing the sphere grid in a way that you didn't have to before. And if you want even like, a chance at beating these things, because like I went back to Bethesda just to like see how it was gonna pan out, and like Valfor had like the first churn anyway, so like wiped out my team in in one, and it was yeah you know, yeah. It's a just, lot. Like it, it just it feels like it needs it should have been implemented a little bit more intelligently. Yeah, or at least like have it just feel a bit more optional you know have it be like this summoner that you can challenge or something like that uh you know make it or or even have it be like the dark mega sisters where you know they will chase you but you can run around them and and go to where you need to go because that's what you can do and on the jose high road is do that but having some of them be like encounters is is not great Mm. Especially um, it's like it's not telegraphed to you in any way. Like you can go right. to say without knowing that person's gonna be there, and it happens the second you walk into the village. And I think the telegraph is supposed to be that part in the Calmlands where the dude shows up and tells you like, "Hey, maybe don't go anywhere that has a temple right now because there mm-hmm. are assassins looking for you." But that's also like, it happens so long ago in the story that by the time you now have the airship and can travel around, you are not thinking about that one throwaway line that some dude told you in the column lands, you right. know? And it's, also, like, when we haven't got to it yet, but, like, there's going to be plot that would maybe lead you to think that's not really an issue anymore. Yeah, not a problem anymore. And those, I guess those guys just don't get caught, called off in the middle of it. So. Well, there's no phones, you know. That's that's the forbidden mm, machina. Mm, so. yeah. <laughs> um. There are, I so we've talked about all that. There are three pieces, let's say, of endgame content that are important that Ken and I both did play. Uh, and they are the three final Aeons that you can get, the optional Aeons, uh, that do feel really rewarding to go take care of. Um, mm. The first one... Uh, I'll, I'll Caver- say a couple of them feel rewarding. Oh, one of them, I, I, one of them okay. the fucking wet fart. We'll, we'll talk about them. We'll talk about them. So the first one, Cavern of the Stolen Faith, uh, is that area that as you were going into Mount Gagazette after you fought the giant defender robot, uh, Lulu and Waka kind of tell you, hey, that's that's a different path that goes somewhere else. Uh, you can go back there and it is uh, a cavern where a faith that had previously been in a temple had been stolen and uh, Lulu had previously guarded a summoner that died here trying to get that faith. Um, as we go in, uh, we're, we're fighting a bunch of ghosts. It's like a really creepy, creepy atmosphere to it. Mm. We get this whole setting of like this faith was stolen to try and interfere with the pilgrimage, but something went wrong. Like it Mm. didn't click together. Right. Um, and as we go through and it has some really cool enemies in it, as you note here, like 
This is, I think, the first time that we really run into Tonberries, which are infamous Final yeah. Fantasy boss. Uh, that, I mean, every time I see these little jerks show up, it's hilarious, and I love them. Um, yeah, I mean, they're like cute and unassuming, but they're like very powerful. Um, which was wild because like we we see it very late in this game, but like I I've been playing ahead, playing into two. I'm I'm one of those fuckers in the first chapter, and. Yep, uh, yep. Was was not as powerful at the time, but um, yeah, like was very surprised by that. Uh, I still love the part in Seven Remake where you can do a, a side quest and fight a Tonberry, and I think that is like genuinely another great part of that game is when you run into that thing and you're just like, mm. if you know, you're like, oh shit. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, there's also I ran away from the urns. The, the urn thing I always got really annoyed by and never wanted to deal with them. And also I don't think they like count for any monster capture or anything like that. So I just ran away from them constantly, but um, some mm. cool enemies, the ghost enemies in here are really cool too. Just some neat designs and ideas that the nice part about this game is it makes this side content, which is totally missable, like feel very part of the game still not like you're just kind of going somewhere and then being like, Oh look, it's a super secret end boss. But, like, it really feels like there's an effort put into why this place might exist and the way that it does yeah. and, I mean, and what it, it means for the world. Right. That was one definitely one of my takeaways with this one. Is that just, like, the the implications that, like, somebody has... Like, there's been resistance in some, to some degree against Yevon for so long that some, a place like this can exist where somebody tried mm-hmm. to steal a faith and, like, put mm-hmm. it in a place where nobody would be able to get to it. And that was, like, you know, an end game that they had. It's so um, weird. Hmm. How do you steal a faith? Like, do you chisel it out and run out of there with it? It's like Ocean's 11 or Ocean's 13, I think is where they do that. But, um, yeah. How do you, how do you even get up to that? There's such a heist had to go down. Let's play that video game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, as, as we get into, it's not a very long dungeon either, which is also nice. Uh, I appreciated that it, a lot of these end game areas kind of, knew how much to really put in there, you know, to make it feel like a different area without being like, here's an entirely massive new dungeon. You know, it's thank you for the brevity. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we go in and lady Ginnum is there. One of Lulu's first summoners that she guarded guarded. And, uh, she's unsent and unhappy. Let's mm-hmm. say, <laughs> um, and and as Yuna tries to send her and Lulu's feeling really bad about the whole thing, Gidim is basically like gets aggressive and Lulu's like, oh, well, there's nothing left of her. She's too far gone at this point. We're going to have to send her the old fashioned way by killing her ghost. Um, So we she summons Yojimbo and we have to fight Yojimbo, who is the Aeon, the faith that we're here for. Uh, he didn't really do much in my fight against him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. he kind of just used the dog attack over and over again. Yeah, it was um uneventful. Yeah, it's kind least. of a boring fight to be honest. Yeah. But um, I mean, yeah, because I mean, like, what makes him most interesting doesn't happen in this fight. Is that how Yuna has to use him, and which like, we can talk about when we talk about how we get him. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah. I never actually ended up summoning Yojimbo in this game. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I, we get the next two Aeons, and those are bangers. So mm-hmm. I used them, and I was like, I'm not really going to mess around with Yojimbo. Uh, 
but uh we we get a scene of of Ginnum being defeated and Lulu being like, you know, I thought I'd be sadder, but I'm just so used to goodbyes and stuff. I was like, dang, Lulu plot development, Lulu character mm. development in a side dungeon. You know, they heard our prayers through the, <laughs> through time <laughs> and put this in here, but then stuck it in a side dungeon. Uh, and then we get this weird thing where we like teleport into the faith using those little weird teleporter pads. And uh, we haggle with the Ojimbo over how much gill we're going to give him to become uh one of our aeons uh and you can you can haggle him down to about like half of his mm. initial asking price or so uh if you answer his question right and then kind of like work the system a little bit there's guides out there for it but yeah. um yeah it, i think conceptually yojimbo is a really cool character a cool aeon mm. uh is definitely got a look and a vibe but also, I think of the three post-game Aeons that you get, Yojimbo ends up being, like, the the least memorable, if only because it's not, you know, a certain character that we're about to talk about that is, like, hugely important to the plot and the world. Uh, and it's not this really, really interesting mechanic and idea and design for a summon. Uh, like, I, mean, I think I think he's mechanically like really interesting. I just think like because, because we, we haven't talked about it. So like we say the way that Yojimbo works is you pay him Gil and he decides what he's going to do. Like he yeah. like you don't pick his attacks and that's interesting because like it can there's like a level of like I mean it's gambling basically is what it is and so like yeah you can pay him some money and then he will use just some like fucking off the wall attack but he's also just not reliable because like he might do something that's not that powerful like he'll even have a full overdrive bar and you can pay him all your fucking money and he might he still might not use his overdrive and so like again like he, he is gambling made into a character that you're using and that is cool it makes him distinct but also just make there's when you have an aeon out you need them to be impactful in the yeah like, regardless and you, you just can't rely on him in the same way that you can everybody else. And that is why I think he's not, I mean, like I, I, th- I think he's worth getting. And I think he's like, I think the whole cavern of the stolen face for all the reasons that we said is interesting and worth going to, but I just, he, he's always the last Aeon that I use. And anytime I'm like, you know, throwing them all out there because it's just, like I, you're basically a last resort for me at that point to like do some high level damage before I have to get back to using my party again. Yeah. Like, I do think conceptually he's cool, but even just in practice as an Aeon, like there, there are two Aeons here that are kind of, you know, random chance Aeons. And I think the other one just does it in a more interesting way and, and, and has a more novel idea behind it. And one that also feels more like it was meant to be wielded in the system, I guess, in the way that they want you to kind of use Aeons historically. So I guess it is interesting to have a different kind of Aeon, but you also just end up with something that just feels completely useless in terms of what you actually end up using Aeons for. Because at this point, let's be honest, like Aeons are just like bullets in a gun Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you're shooting (laughs) because you are summoning them for their overdrive and then maybe if it's like bahamut or the next aeon we're picking up they get a few extra attacks in but they're going to get wiped out pretty quick it's rare that you ever get two overdrives out of them 
because of the damage that these bosses are dishing out. It's also not worth the resources to max out these Aeons statistically. So really, it's just kind of like bullets in a gun that Yuna can shoot to do a ton of damage in a fight. And in in that sense, I think Yojimbo doesn't stand out, whereas the design of these other two characters that we're getting into do offer not just more powerful options as Aeons, but more interesting options and kind of at least try to create an Aeon that won't just be the bullet in the gun. So it's, I, I don't know. Yojimbo, Yojimbo conceptually and the Cavern of Law, Stolen Faith and, and all that, I love it. I think it's great. I just think once you have Yojimbo, it's like, okay, I I did the thing. I'm not going to use this character ever again because <laughs> I'm also like using my gill on other stuff. So it's, it's just weird. Um, let's talk about a banger of an Aeon though. Let's talk about anima. Let's talk about the Baj temple because Which I if think we go, yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into it. We, we go to the Xanarkin ruins all the way back where, where Titus first wakes up in Spira. And I think it's honestly one of my favorite bits that they've done in the game is that you can go back there and go to the exact spot where Titus fell in the water and, you know, started off that whole very horrible, no good, very bad day. Uh, and you get in there and you see Titus with Riku and Waka and Waka's like, what are we doing in here, dude? And Titus is like, it's a giant fish that tried to eat me when I was here last. <laughs> I want to kill it. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I love that they thought of this. I love that this was an idea that they had because ultimately this giant fish, Giazgano, has nothing to do with Baj Temple. Absolutely mm. nothing to do with any of this area or any of the lore that is happening here. But I love that the impetus for stumbling into all of this is there's a big ass fish that Titus wants to get revenge on for almost <laughs> eating him. And theoretically, if a player was to discover it, that would theoretically be the way that they do discover it is by being like, I want to go fight that fish again. And then they stumble into this huge discovery. That's cool. That's interesting to me. I think that's neat. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it is kind of weird that Giazgano has nothing to do with anima or Baj temple at all, but it also fits Titus's modus operandi very well that he's just like, we'll see what happens. I just want to go stab that fish. (laughs) (laughs) I do 9,999 damage now and almost stab that fish. Um, we are underwater. So Riku died immediately Mm. (laughs) and spent the entire fight floating in the water (laughs) as, uh, Titus and Waka kind of fought it out. And I will say it felt, moderately difficult i actually thought i was going to wipe on it a few times but i mostly just kind of used mega potions and Mm. just kept attacking over and over and over again and eventually just whittled giascano down because thankfully whereas a lot of these endgame bosses are getting up into like the let's say eighty thousand ninety thousand hp range uh giascano is only like a thirty thousand so That's nice. I yeah, enjoyed I, that. I was not really having trouble until it started eating people, and then taking yeah. on like their buff, which was bullshit. Because like, oh, I, like he mm. like he would eat one of my characters who had haste on them, and then he'd take haste, but he's a, immune to slow. So like, fuck me, I guess. Um, but it was and and like he 
he spits people out after he eats them, and then mm. that's that's the part that does a lot of damage, and uh, it does damage to like the party members surrounding them as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. that was where it got tough, but it, it was yeah, like you said, relative to everything else you're fighting in the end game, it's a you know a footnote. Mm-hmm. And so in this area. Uh, we can dive off to the right to go get Lulu's Onion Knight Celestial Weapon, which is over, like, hiding in a corner over there, which is kind of weird. Um, and I literally only remembered it because I've gotten it once before. But on the other side, we've got the uh, Baj Temple, which, as we soon discover, is a temple with a bunch of spheres and, and blockages in front of it. And as we learn... Those only open up if we go back and do the destruction sphere at each of the major temples in the game. Uh, except for, well, no, no, you have to do the destruction sphere in Bevel to beat Bevel. So that's the only one that's like not optional. But all the other ones uh, are ones that you have to have hit. And I think the Makalania one is one that you can't go back and do. I think you have to do it the first time you're there. Mm. And then the Xanarkin one, you actually have to go back after you finish the Xanarkin trials and do it again there to do the destruction sphere stuff. So it is like you have to have some knowledge of the game and some knowledge yeah. of what the requirements are to do all this, um, which is weird because once yeah, we I, open. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. again, that's like a sign of the times. I think that all these like really not telegraph things are a requirement for something kind of huge at the end. I do think there's an interesting symbolism in the idea that like the destruction sphere, which is not only like optional, but tends to involve destroying something and feels kind of like you're breaking apart the temple in some way to uncover new Mm. treasure ends up resulting in anima who is, as we learn, once we go inside and talk to the faith, it's Seymour's mother. Mm -hmm. Um, We, like unnamed learning mother. again mothers don't have names in this game yeah yeah unnamed unnamed seymour mother as soon as, soon as lulu gives birth and tend to everyone will forget her name it's, it's no way home <laughs> <laughs> um i think we're far enough removed out from the, from the it, it, if you can... if you care about spoilers for that movie you've already seen it they that was in the trailer that's in the trailer the trailer of that movie is like this is what the plot of the movie is no um so it's fine we're fine um yeah it's uh god seymour's mother is in there and we get some backstory on seymour i wouldn't say like a sympathetic i always this is a pet peeve of mine i don't know what recently sparked this in me to remember it but i think there's a weird notion that fleshing out a character and adding like their reasoning for why they might do something can be seen as like making them a good character does that make sense like I, like i get I, what you're oh saying. you see their backstory and maybe not a like, bad guy after all no like giving it, someone a backstory is just making them a more fleshed out character right. you can there, still be an a, evil character with yeah. a good backstory like there's a difference between understanding why somebody does it and understanding like or understanding why somebody does something and also like, sympathizing with it like those are two completely yes, different yes. things that like Use similar words unless people think they're the same. Hashtag mm-hmm. Thanos was right. Bullshit. Like, yeah. And I, I think I was seeing some of this around, like, there's been a lot of Scorsese talk recently and how a lot of his characters are, like, 
people who do bad things, but the movies are about how they have reasons for it and you're supposed to see them as heroes. And I'm like, that's, I think if you get that reading from like Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas or something like that, then you got the wrong reading from the movie. Like people, <laughs> people that think comprehension is like the end of how you're supposed to relate to people. I don't know. Like, well, mm. I, I bring this up in terms of Seymour because we get some backstory here uh, that I really do think is like something that behooves you to know about Seymour, which is we get to see some of his actual struggle of growing up as half human, half Guado and, you know, him facing a lot of pressure as a young child uh, to be that bridge between races while also dealing with um, denigration from both sides. And finally, you know, the mother saying, I wanted to give Seymour a faith that was so powerful that he would be respected. Like I wanted him to have that power so he wouldn't be looked down on anymore. And then Seymour became obsessed with the power of control and removing things that went against him in power. And so he became fixated on sin because sin is the ultimate power. Sin is death incarnate. And so you start to understand not just why anima is so horrifying and, and terrifying and powerful, but also here is this backstory of why Seymour is this way, but also the fact that it's like hidden here behind all these doors and check marks and things. Part of me really does wish that this was part of the main game, like that this was part of the, the mm. progression to the finale or at least like not locked in a way that felt like you had to understand and do the right things at the right time. Because I do think this is something we're going to talk about a lot with X2. Um, sorry, 10 to, um, I thought you were but, talking, I thought you were talking about X-Men 2, the movie. Um, it's We've been over this. I'm just going to say it one more time. When you put a Roman numeral next to a number numeral, it just messes with my brain. Uh, and so, like, that is the whole reason why I have that weird problem. What do you call the sequel to Final Fantasy thirteen? I call that thirteen two, but also, oh, like... But also, like, there's not a phonetic for, like, X-I-I-I, but there is a phonetic for X. And we do have X used frequently as, like, uh, an acronym, like, say, SSX Tricky and things like that. So I I do think there is, like, reason for this in my... I'm not saying this is, like, a widespread thing. I'm saying this is a me problem. Mm. (laughs) I acknowledge it's a me problem in this instance. Um. But yeah, it's, I think the, even if it wasn't just part of the main story, it feels like this very interesting bit of side story that could have been more and maybe could have helped to make Seymour more of an interesting character. Because by the time we run into him here in the finale, I'm just like, fuck this dude. I'm so sick of this dude. I mean, I... I appreciate all the things you're, like, you're extrapolating from this, but I also don't feel like the scene that we're given here actually does all of this. It's a like, short scene. It's a that, really small scene. And I think scene. that's, that's what's... When I saw it, it was more... like I think, I think it clicked with me why it was optional, because it feels really shallow in the way that it's presented, in a way that is not the way the majority of like the main game is, which, I don't know. Like I, I don't think that that is 
the optimal way for this whole thing to have gone because I think like the optimal way like you said it should have been on the main path in some way I think that would have resulted in it getting a little bit more care and a little bit more like time and resources put into it because it's just like as far as like Seymour's struggles go like all they show is just like a scene of him crying in a room that we've never seen before and Mm -hmm. like like you said like I don't like again like comprehension of Seymour and like why he is who he is is not like the part that makes that like interesting to me it's like i i see this potential for them to have really extrapolated this into like a larger thing that they could have done throughout the game instead of this thing that is like you said hidden away behind all of shit and just it it, it feels tacked on in a way which is really disappointing because like even the yojimbo shit like that area felt more fleshed out than this Mm -hmm. yeah it's just I wanted this to be more because it could have been that opportunity for them to make Seymour a little bit more. And also, Hey, name a mother, but it's yeah, what a concept. like, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just getting anima is really cool though. Mm-hmm. It like I used anima a lot in the end game, uh, both for like overdrive damage and just because anima's cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anima is absolutely like once you have anima, it's like game over for everything else that you fight. Like yeah. we'll talk about it in this next section, but anima is just powerful, mm-hmm. <laughs> like just absolutely terrifying. Um, so let's head back to Remium Temple for the f- for the last optional one. So here's a little bit of extra work we got to do. Over in Remium Temple is Belgamine, our our summoner challenger dueler. Uh, she's been hanging out here and she says this temple was abandoned. You know, there's obviously there's sin battles all the time mm. happening over here. So probably not the best place to have a temple. I will say the design of Remium temple for something that is an optional area is so cool. Yeah. It looks just it's like amazing. suspended from like it, or at least like my recollection of them. It's like it's suspended like over a chasm. Yeah, it's either like suspended or its pillars go so deep that you can't see the base of them. And either way, like whichever one it is, and it's hard to even tell, it just looks cool. It's just like a cool design. And the whole part where you're racing the Chocobo down, even though it's kind of just this superfluous thing, it looks amazing because Mm -hmm. of like descending lower and lower on these like (laughs) no handrails Mm -hmm. uh, ramps down to the center. And it's, it's, it's a cool design for a temple. Um, so she reveals that she is dead. She's mm-hmm. also on sense. Like half the characters are in this freaking mm-hmm. story. <laughs> um, but she does not want to be sent yet because she wants to provide, Yuna the final challenge. So it's at this point that we open up kind of an optional side activity to battle every single one of her aeons. Um, and if you'd fought her in the Calm Lands before, you have the ability to upgrade your Aeon stats and stuff. Otherwise, if you missed it, like Ken did, <laughs> uh, this is where you get it now. Uh, it's also just something that ends up feeling like once you have Anima and Bahamut, like those two just plow through every single one of these mm. Aeons with like barely any attempt. They're not... They're not the puzzle fights that they were kind of at the beginning of the game. Yeah. And granted, like, I think Aeon stats also somewhat scale with Yuna as well. So at this point, Yuna is pretty high level. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Aeons are pretty powerful and most of them are doing 
you know, the damage limit or breaking the damage limit. So, uh, with, with their overdrives and then doing like thousands and thousands of damage with their regular attacks. And a lot of them have the ability to self heal and things like that. So once you know those mechanics, these fights are actually pretty easy. Uh, even some of the ones that are the post game optional ones, cause you do have to beat all of the aeons that she can mm. have, which includes, uh, Yojimbo anima and, as we beat some of them here uh, through getting an item from Belgamine and then also getting another item by uh, capturing yeah. all the fiends in Mount Gagazette, which is on, was not that difficult. Honestly, it took me maybe like 10 minutes. Yeah. That was not that hard. But still arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's one that the dude directs you to because at first he's like, hey, go get all the Colin Lance monsters and I can open up the arena. And then he's like, Hey, if you want something new to do, why don't you head over to Mount Gagazette? It's right mm. over there, and I bet it'd be really easy to go get all those monsters. And so the game kind of like prods you in that direction right away. Mm. Um, but uh, you can get the Magus Sisters uh, after you get these two items: the the Blossom Crown and the Flower uh, Flower Specter. Yep, Scepter, Scepter. Um, okay. I think it's the Scepter. I think it's the Scepter. Because Fly Respector doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it's oh, uh, yeah, okay, it's scepter. I don't. I, uh, maybe it's a typo on my part. No, I think that was an autocorrect thing or something. Mm. Um, damn, sorry, I'm I've dunked on you twice now <laughs> in, in one <laughs> section. <laughs> um, it is. I I think the Maga sisters are really freaking cool. Yeah, the, I think the the like story implementation of and like the way that it's presented like with zero ceremony. Oh, yeah. very disappointing. And like that, I think was the thing I came away from all of the optional aeons. Kind of like like understanding why they're optional, not because like I don't think they're worth having, but just like the actual implementation that Square put into putting them in the world always felt a little off, a little like not the same level of ceremony, and just yeah. Cause like Yuna literally just walks and walks out, and she has the, the fucking day on. And I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, and it's it doesn't feel very like it's not like they're Belgamines or anything like that. Like it's not right. like they're uh, there's some significant story thing tied to them. It's just that they're kind of in the same area as Belgamine and as the Chocobo yeah. legendary Chocobo thing. Like they kind of just made a temple and were like, let's put some end game stuff in here. <laughs> yeah. Um. But as actual Aeons to summon, I love the Maga sisters because they basically very fight cool. as a party yeah. and you kind of give them directives. You know, you say, do whatever you want or fight or help your sisters or use a super powerful attack or defend. And they kind of just interpret that and have a set of skills, you know, like actual characters that they have available to them. And so it requires both knowledge of what each character's tendency is and what kind of function they perform in the trio. And then also balancing all that to keep them alive. Cause I think individually they are strong, but not the strongest, you know, n no one single one of them is stronger than say anima, mm. but together combined, they are so powerful. Like, mm you get them to overdrive status. I was using them against uh, one of the final bosses in the game and you get them into the point where they are overdriving and things like that. And they are just dishing out turn after turn of so much damage. And it's, it's a cool system. It's a cool idea. I think where Yojimbo fell flat for me in this idea of 
an Aeon that you don't really control and have to kind of like gamble. In that one, it was very much like gambling, just rolling the dice. Whereas here, it feels like you're kind of trying to make informed choices, but also having your hands off the wheel and letting them do what they do. Uh, and I think their design is also fantastic. It's a really cool design. Mm. Uh, the like bug flower sisters and all that and all of them being different shapes and that kind of like corresponding to their moves and what they do mm-hmm. as a unit. Uh, just really cool. Yeah. It, it's one of the, one of the things where like, there there are only a couple of the ones that do this, but it's like that they really stand out as something very mechanically different than mm-hmm. anything else in the game. And Honestly, like, kind of makes me wish that they had done a little bit more of that. Like, not that I mind the way that a lot of these are implemented as these kind of just, like, these glass cannons that you fire at bosses, but, like, you know, there were other ways that they could have maybe thought to um, implement these that could have been cool. It just, you know, it's one of the things yeah. to about. I think by the end of the game, like, I can identify that Anima, you know, has a place. And Anima and Bahamut are, like, your two powerhouses. Like, mm-hmm. they're your one-two punch of non-elemental based aeons they're just going to do crazy amounts of damage and then shiva is kind of your she's super fast and has high evasion so she's kind of your almost tracer like character where you're very like hit and run Mm. glass cannon but can do a lot of damage uh and then uh the maga sisters and ujimbo have their interesting mechanics and it ends up making feel making ixion ifrit and veil for kind of feel left by the wayside as a result, mm-hmm. um, which is not bad. Cause I think when those characters do get introduced, they do feel a purpose, but I definitely feel like, especially Ifrit and Ixion end up feeling like the least standout of the, of the summons by the end of the game, uh, just because they have kind of served their purpose and mm-hmm. have moved on. And I love their designs. Like, I think they're so cool, yeah. but it is, you know, a fact of the matter that they just kind of become another summon in the stable by the end of the game. So, um, one other thing I want to say before we move on past the end game stuff, well, two things. The first one I want to say is about the summons. I love that the optional end game summons were not your typical expected, uh, final fantasy summons. Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy for square to fall back on playing the classics, uh, yeah. doing things like Leviathan, Rama, um, you know, here's, I mean, we've already got Ifrit and Bahamut and Shiva, but like there are a lot of characters and, and summons carbuncle, like things like that, that I think it would have been easy for them to implement and just kind of do in a final fantasy 10 style. And instead, like with each of these three, it really felt like they tried something. Mm-hmm. And even though there's individual stories, maybe not, but I like that anima is like a very final fantasy 10 specific summon. And like, we haven't seen anima, Outside of, like, I think Anima's supposed to be in 14 now. I'm not, uh, yeah. still not sure it, on that. I, and something that I actually, while we were recording this, and I looked at it, Anima's in, in Walker and is apparently male in that, and that makes what? me feel weird. Like, mm, that doesn't, well, that doesn't mm. sound like it was a necessary thing to do. We, yeah, we didn't need to do that. In fact, I think Anima's whole vibe is, like, this angry maternal character is kind of interesting no we don't have that in other characters we've got plenty of angry dude summons yeah <laughs> we've got enough of those yeah he, <laughs> i was about to like read what it says that the this 14 uh anima is about but that might be a spoiler for something that's very recent so i will not do that yeah yeah just mm, 
Okay, well, I'm going to put that in the back of my cab. I might ask some N. Walker folks about that, because now I'm very interested in that. You uh, can go but... read the Link Shell fan by Final Fantasy XIV. <laughs> oh, 14. my God. <laughs> Vertical. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't... I don't begrudge you for the plug <laughs> but <laughs> um shout outs to the link shell who i will probably also be making use of now that i'm playing final fantasy 14 uh but the other thing i did want to shout out and this is not link shell but there's another site that i basically use for most of my final fantasy 10 playthrough it's a site called jegged jegged.com j-e-g-g-e-d.com uh they don't they don't have a lot of guides they have ones for the 10 just 10 like not 10 to just 10 hd remaster they also have one for the original final fantasy 7 uh for final fantasy 9 12 zodiac age uh and i think a few other games like i think they have a legend of zelda walkthrough in here yeah they have ocarina majora's mask and some other stuff ogre battle 64 but their 10 guide is as far as I'm concerned, the end all be all guide mm. for 10. This thing is robust. This thing has separate pages for everything and not in the like we're trying to farm clicks way, but like they very clearly segment things out in terms of here's how you operate the sphere grid. Here's how you mm. do things on the sphere grid. Here's end game sphere grid. Here's like the best methods for going through all the sphere grid stuff. Here's tips and tricks for getting all the sigils and crests and stuff like that. Like, it, it had lists of all the enemies that have stuff for Kamari to lance at things from and things like that. It, this was invaluable to me throughout the playthrough of 10. So if you're playing through 10, if you're thinking about playing through 10, if you know, you want to do a playthrough now that you've listened to the entirety of the podcast and want to go back and play it yourself, or maybe you want to hit some of this end game stuff, uh, you know, you hit the point that we're at and you, you decide I want that platinum this this is the guide jegged.com the the final fantasy 10 guide it is ridiculously good i cannot recommend it enough thank you so much to the folks who put that together y'all were a huge resource uh to me and to us putting this together so i wanted to shout y'all out specifically and and also i know a guide this robust takes some work and some time but if y'all ever want to hit up 10 too you you have <laughs> someone who will read it here <laughs> so uh any other thoughts on the side stuff, Ken, before we move on to the finale? No, I'm ready to go. You ready? You ready yep. to jump into it? Well, we're back at it again at Bavel, baby. <laughs> we have not learned our lesson, and we're landing right on the high bridge to armed guards. But before anything can pop off too much, Shalinda shows up. That character you forgot about throughout this entire game, Shalinda, is here. Uh, she recently got promoted to captain of the guard at Bavel and tells us that, hey, stuff is in total disarray here, but the order has come down from Master Micah to not harm Yuna. And Micah has stated uh, that rumors of Yuna's betrayal were spread by the Albed. And of course, mm. Riku's like, what? Mm. <laughs> um Apparently, with Yevon in disarray, everybody's at each other's throats and everyone is grasping onto whatever they can. Uh, as as Oren notes, this is a power play by Micah to try and have Yuna on his side because that would give him then power if Yuna is then seen as a uh, voice of the people 
mm-hmm. he would be on her side. You know, it's, it's politics. It's right. and, and I kind of like that, that we get this last little bit of Micah just being a, a squirmy politician at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, what a difference from that first introduction we have of him as this like leader of the people and beloved figure to, oh, actually like Grima worm tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. But uh, we meet up with Micah and well, we go to meet up with Micah. Shalinda arranges for a meeting with him uh, and we head to the courtroom and Micah's already waiting for us. Uh, Micah's like, why are you here? Why aren't you fighting sin? Where's the final Aeon? What are you doing? And we're like, well, we kind of killed Unalesk. <laughs> was like, count the people in the room. We are not missing somebody. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we've kind of destroyed the only means of of calming sin as far as Micah is concerned. And even though we're like, hey, we've got ideas, we're coming up with stuff, though we, we could use some help here, like help us out, be of use. And he's just like, nah, it's terrible. Everything's done. We're all going to die. Um, and Titus does ask, you know, who is you, Yevon, this person that Micah mentioned? Or that Unaleska mentioned, I should say. Micah also mentions, uh, "You Yevin's spiral of death will consume us all." Micah says, "You Yevin is the one who crafts the souls of the dead into armor, the armor of sin." Uh, so basically, this is going to be a thing that I'm going to harp on a little bit. You Yevin is kind of this ambiguous force mm-hmm. that is a summoner, a very powerful summoner who just kind of likes to summon and let's yeah, we'll, we'll get to that part, but like it is the heart of sin. So like sin is the shell around you, Yevon and you, Yevon is the thing at the middle. And so that is what, when, when sin, the armor is destroyed, you, Yevon takes on the final Aeon as the new armor, and that becomes the new sin after the calm has ended. Uh, anyway, so then Micah's like, F y'all, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just dissipates into fireflies. I didn't... Uh, fireflies, sorry, but uh, that's also a thing you can do, I guess. If you are an unsent in this world, you can just be like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs> finally off. give in to death, I suppose. No sending. <laughs> I mean, they do state that at some point early in the game. They say something like there are people who, if they accept death, mm-hmm. they don't have to be sent. Right. But, they, they talked about that might have been what happened to Chitus' mother at one point. Yeah. Because he's like, who sent her? If, you know, and so. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. Who? What's her name? I can't tell you. Nobody's <laughs> ever told me. So I, just, I can simply refer to her by the fact that she bore a child. <laughs> the fact that she married Jekt and had... Well, well, theoretically, Mary Jack, I don't know if you even have confirmation of that, but uh, that, that she is the mother of a child that, that was Jack's. <laughs> have you heard about Jack? <laughs> In passing. Uh, Never met the man. I love this game, but man, there are some points where I'm just like, <laughs> y'all didn't have like a spare Friday, you know, half day where you were like, oh, we should probably name these characters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> Becky <laughs> checked and Becky, um, Shalinda then shows up after Micah has dissipated into the ether and is like, Hey, what happened? And Oren 
quick on his feet. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, but, where is Micah? <laughs> before any of these fucking kids can be like, he just disappeared. Yeah, he disappeared, and we killed you in Alaska. And Oren's like, uh-uh. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've gotten out of scrabs like this before. Like, that is... Look, seen I love Oren for a lot of reasons. Seen enough of these kids to know where, where this is going if I don't speak up now. That th- spoken like a dude that has had to get out of some shit before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I, I love Oren for many reasons, and this is pretty high on the list. Is this exact moment? It's right <laughs> there with the speech for me. Like Oren just on the spot pivots. <laughs> um, love it. Love Oren. Uh, and then Bahamut shows up. The faith of Bahamut is like, "Hey, c- come see me." And Titus and Yuna are both like, "Okay." I'm also going to mention that at the end of this game, there are a lot of the weird, awkward cutoff voice lines. I was noticing a lot more of mm-hmm. them. Just the like, okay, like just yeah. very jolted. And that was one of them. So uh, we head on down to the faith chamber and Bahamut is like, Hey, have you figured out a way to beat sin? And so we can kind of bring up multiple choices here. I did the him and then you Yevin, just cause I wanted to see both options, but mm. the answer is you, Yevin. Um, but you can also bring up the idea that you have about pacifying sin using the hymn of the faith. And then uh, Bahamut kind of gives us a little bit more information about you, Yevin, that I was going into previously. Uh, you, Yevin, was once a summoner, peerless, uh, but now he only lives to summon. This dude lives for summoning. And he's done it for so long that he just summons. He is just summoning incarnate. And uh, when he joins with Aeons, they just kind of get absorbed into him. So that's what the final Aeon stuff is. is It's something that's powerful enough to destroy sin, but then also becomes sin. So yeah, it it is really kind of beautiful in the way in which it like plainly lays out the cycle of... Mm -hmm oh, we made something that could kill sin, which is just an amalgamation of dead souls and Aeon in in one person. But that Aeon is so powerful and it's also still an Aeon that you Yevin's like, yoink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's nobody left to take care of that. And I guess nobody has ever tried to kill you Yevin. And also the final Aeon kills the summoner. So there's nobody like standing around to take out you Yevin afterwards. So they're just all like, fuck it, whatever. <laughs> like, 10 years is better than zero. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, mm. you really do see how silly the cycle is. I think when you, when you get to this part. Right. And um, I mean, I think like it also just speaks to the fact that like this, this thing sustains itself because nobody ever questions these things. And right. like all the things, all of these things that we're like, well, I would simply just fucking kill you. You haven't like, like this is the foundation of the society in a way that like no one has ever questioned. And yeah, you have to have like a fucking wild card, like Titus that comes in and like ask questions because they've never fucking understood any, like he's just not grown up in this shit. And he'd be like, you know, this part of this kind of seems kind of weird. And they're like, whoa, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. And so Bahamut then tells us, like, hey, the Aeons want this to end, too. The Faith want this to end, too. We will help you destroy you, Yevin. Which, put a pin in that. Put a pin in that. (laughs) But then, also, Bahamut then reminds Titus that once this is all over, the Faith will wake up, and anything they were dreaming of may vanish. And Titus is like, I get that. I'm just grateful for what I've had. And Yuna's like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> and Titus is like, I don't know. Bye. <laughs> uh, I like her going like, you're a bad liar uh, and all that. Like she just immediately mm. knows something's up uh, and has starts to get a hunch. Uh, so we leave and Shalina's like, I don't know where I can't find Micah. And we're like, damn, that's bad. Anyway, we're leaving. <laughs> uh and then as as we're leaving, we know that hey, Shalinda could help us out. Riku points it out. Says, Hey, get everyone when you hear a ship at the sky playing the hymn of the faith, get everyone in spirit to sing along. And she's like, Why? What's up? And uh we're basically saying we're going to try and calm sin to kill it. And she's like, Oh, you're killing sin. That's great. I'd love to help with that. I'll spread the word around. And I love how little you tell Shalinda about this whole thing. And plan. she's just fucking on board. Yeah, but she's on board. You know, she's cool. Shalinda, end of the day, just down to help out anyway. You know, we love to see it. Um, super helpful. Unlike Micah, who's just like, peace, I'm out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, oh, so mm, I forgot something from our endgame section. That I'm just mm. now realizing as we get into the section about Waka uh, <laughs> coming to terms with his racism. <laughs> so let's address that first. Uh, Waka, uh, as we get back on the airship and start to prepare for this final fight against Sin, it's like, hey, I need to say something. I need to. I need to own up to something. I'll admit that I didn't know anything about the Albed to the point that I couldn't recognize multiple Albed people when they were standing right in front of me, <laughs> but I was stubborn. I wasn't, I was born this way and I'm sorry. Uh, I want to apologize. And Sid earns his sainthood <laughs> by <laughs> turning around and saying like, Oh, you know, well, I always felt the same about Yevonat. So it's all good. There's some good. There's some bad. There's all kinds of people in spirit. Don't worry about it. I like doing a little like Boomhauer with Sid. Mm-hmm. You know, he's I like him a lot. Sid is one of my favorite characters and should also be in King of the Hill. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's Sid earns his sainthood there by not just decking Waka mm-hmm. and throwing him out the airship for being like, of course, you were racist, you moron. <laughs> but character mm-hmm. growth for Waka. <laughs> what a concept. You figured it out at the end of the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, I like that there is an element of right as we're about to head into the final fight, Walk is like, I should probably make up for my racism before the credits <laughs> roll on this game. <laughs> um, the thing I wanted to mention about the end game is if you get all the all bed primers, you can talk to Rin, um, the the guy who was running the travel agency and has been hanging out on the airship as you're kind of traveling uh, shop in lieu of Owaka and Owaka's brother. Uh, and when you talk to him, when you have all the all bed primers, uh, he says something to you in all bed. I think he says, have you been brushing up on your, on your all bed? And Titus responds in fluent all bed is like, oh, I've mm-hmm. been working on it. So I've been picking it up. And Rin's surprised. He's like, oh my God, you actually, you're learning it. That wasn't bad either. And he, and Titus is just like, yeah, you know, we've been finding them all over the world and I've just been studying them whenever I had time. And then Rin has a line that I just really loved. And he was like, I'm so glad that I was finally able to share a conversation with you in my language Mm -hmm. or something like that. 
and he he gives you a bunch i think it's the underdog secret which is like another one of those end game high tier mixing items mm. uh he gives you a bunch of stuff for that and so like that's one good reason to do it but it was also just like an example of such a small scene that ends up just being such this sweet moment of like mm-hmm. oh like language is such an important thing to right. people you know being able to talk to somebody in your tongue and share that culture with somebody else. Right. And like Titus, like the game noticing that you made the effort to get all the all bid primers. And like, ultimately the reward mm. is not like, Oh, you get a new Aeon and something right. like that. It's, it's really minor. And yeah. you only notice it if you're talking to Reen. Uh, otherwise it's just like, you can understand all the all bed that's in the game. Right. But it's such a nice little scene. I loved yeah. it. And it was... I mean, it's, it, it is small, but like it, it's like a kind of hopeful expression that like, mm-hmm. bridges are being built. And I feel like, you know, the game is about to go like, you know, directly towards just like sin is the thing that we have to focus on right now. But I like that it's kind of like leaving these kind of, uh, in whatever ways it can, it's leaving these threads of like, this world is going to be different in a mm-hmm. lot more ways than other than the fucking whale that shows up and kills people. Like, mm-hmm. all these little things. Like, and you know, that pairs well with Waka being like, okay, I, like, the Albed are, like, you know, showing all this Machina that they've been, that we've, that we've viewed as, like, this fucking evil thing for the longest time. And I've, have, I've had to sit with these people for longer than I've ever had to before. And now, like, everyone's just starting to, like, you know, like I said, like, bridges are being built in even small ways. It's it's really nice. It's really sweet. It's a great way to to cap it all off. And now we have a new destination on the map. Just says sin. Mm. <laughs> it's just sin. Um, and so we we roll up to sin and we start blasting the hymn from the ship. And sin is shows up as kind of just wobbling and hanging out. And so we're like, well, how do we get inside? probably just gonna have to blow a hole in it (laughs) which i I was thinking about i was like does sin have a blowhole because sin is kind of like you know giant beluga whale at the end of the day i was Mm. like wonder if sin has a blowhole Uh, we make a blowhole (laughs) um we we start heading up and and riku brother makes a very uh tearful thing to riku saying riku you guard and all that it's it's very Another character that I think I'm going to end up liking a lot, especially as we move into Ten Two, and mm-hmm. Brother becomes more of a character there, kind of the Sid of that game, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know, but Brother's kind of been around, you know, hanging out in the background throughout all of this. So it's nice to see him here hanging mm-hmm. out. Uh, we head up top onto the deck, and Titus pulls out the sphere that Yuna had left behind. Uh, in in Gagset. By the way, we had a listener who I, I had mentioned earlier when we were talking about that scene. So like I wonder if you can miss that sphere, if you can walk by it. And I want to make sure I pull up uh who it was who pointed this out. Uh Micah on in the Discord pointed out uh if you try walking past Unisphere in Gagazet, uh you can walk past it but you can't leave the area without watching it. So you do have to view mm, that sphere okay. no matter what. So thank you, Micah, for for checking that out for us. Um but Titus pulls out the sphere. Is like, hey, remember this? And Yuna freaks out. I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I... where'd it go? Uh, and he's like, you don't need it anymore, right? Because it was the sphere that was her kind of leaving messages for everyone after she's gone. 
and he just yeets that thing off the side mm-hmm. of the airship, <laughs> just directly off the side. And I was like, dang, Titus, there's a semiconductor shortage right now. We could have used those parts. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Uh, and then here comes Sin, who doesn't like littering. Uh, and he's pretty pissed uh, and starts throwing out energy blasts. And there's this huge cutscene of him just annihilating ship. Uh, shit just to be you know sin just mm. to be like Marrr. and we're like well that wasn't great we should probably try killing him now um so sid notices a weak spot on, at the base of sin's arm and he pulls us in and then this turns into kind of a fight that's that's very similar to the every altana or not every altana but just every fight mm. where we have this kind of uh move in pull back thing where we can use Titus or Riku to call out to Sid to say, Hey, uh, you know, this is, you know, where we want to fight. And honestly, in this one, I think it's utilized a bit better because with Evray, it really felt like just constantly pull backwards until you can't really like manage that anymore. But by that point, you've already pretty much won the fight. But with sin, there is a lot of cool, interesting, like, moving in to attack the weak spot because at this point you have a lot of characters that can do a lot of damage uh, up close and you need to do things like armor break and stuff like that to be able to do the damage that you want to do. But then also pulling back to avoid uh, the gravity attack that Sin has. That's kind Mm. of his trademark attack uh, that can do so much damage. Um, And also Sin does a lot of stuff like negating your... Uh, buffs and abilities so it is this very back and forth like attrition fight yeah like the negation shit was especially frustrating and i eventually i eventually stopped using haste because like if i realized there were less buffs and debuffs on the board he wouldn't that wouldn't be his go-to thing and because like it it ignores turns like it doesn't it doesn't even have to be like since turn to use that and so i wasted so many times like so so many turns trying to manages that that i would when i finally stopped using haste it made the entire fight slower but it was less frustrating and like i would feel like i was making more progress but it was still just like a little frustrating in that way yeah and it is i don't i don't think this particular sin fight is too interesting or even like challenging Mm. i got through it it was definitely like there were parts of it that got spotty but i never felt like i was in too right. much of a danger of losing mm-hmm. at least during the opening part against the two fins because we do this twice um but another fun part is that uh <laughs> we after we weaken it up enough sid blasts it with the main guns of the airship and that thing just rips through sin like takes mm-hmm. the fin right off and good god like it makes you think back to Operation Mien and all mm. that, and and being like, man, if they really committed to the idea of using Machina, you know, in in unison with the sort of forces that we have, like the the Aeons and things like that, Sin's pretty dang killable. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that was it's that doable. was like that was my first thought is that like if this taboo had not been on this technology, Sin would have probably been gone a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, and granted there are a lot of other factors that are allowing for this you right. know the fact that you've got somebody with a blitz ball that can do more damage than a giant mythical being can do mm-hmm. and stuff like that but uh there you know i do like that it it 
it does feel like a combination of all the different efforts of Spira. You know, you have summoners and Albed Machina and magic and all these different things working together mm-hmm. to f- combat sin in a way that feels like Yevon was always afraid of because mm-hmm. I mean, if we want to get into some class politics here, mm-hmm. you know, the a force that the people united up. could overthrow Yevon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> workers of Spira. <laughs> Finally, we got to class politics in this one. <laughs> uh, surely we won't get into a game in the future that'll have more of that. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, so we take out both the arms, and uh, turns out the gun only had a few shots in the tank before it gets busted and has a problem. And Sid's like, pull back, we'll think of something else. And Titus is like, nah. We're jumping on top of Sin. We're here already. We're going to finish the fight. Fuck the toxin. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, to Yuna's credit, uh, you know, Tia's kind of looks towards her and she's like, what are you waiting for? And like hops off the ship and it's just Mm. like, hell yeah. And I think that whoever does that is determined by your, like the affection meter that's having in the background. Oh, is that that an affection thing? I think that's, I think that's the the scene that that happens on. Maybe. Mm, no, no, I'm. We might need to look that up at some point, but, um. Anyways, so we get down. Now it's probably a good part for me to talk about what my kind of like end game strategy was because it really like came to fruition in these fights. So I mentioned earlier that I wanted Lulu's uh celestial weapon because it gives her one MP cost. Because at this point, I have spent enough AP in different spheres. I had to like move Kimari because Kimari was the closest. Uh, to the mm. Ultima space. Like, I had to use a teleport sphere or return sphere to get him back to a node that he'd already activated and then use his AP to move down there and then unlock all the level four spheres and then have him learn Ultima and then use black magic spheres to teach it to uh, Lulu because Lulu was on a different part entirely of the sphere grid uh, and it just learned double cast. But Lulu... If she uses double cast and Ultima, that's like half her freaking mana pool. Mm. <laughs> it's a very powerful spell. And so I was sitting there and I was like, well, crap. You know, this is a great end game strategy for me to just like blow the doors off this game. But I, I don't want to dodge lightning 200 times to get it. Mm. Well, another magic using character that we already have, I'd already gotten the celestial weapon for that also gives her break damage limit and one MP cost spells, which was great for all the healing and stuff I needed to do. But also theoretically, Oh, by the way, it's, you know, one, one minor gripe I have is that when Yuna is equipped with the, the celestial weapon, it's one MP cost in battle, but it's not yeah. one MP cost outside of battle. So Cura and Kiraga were still huge MP costs if I was yeah. using them between fights. But uh, so I, it, it got to the point where I stopped curing people outside of battle. Like I would just cure them in fights or use mega potions or something mm-hmm. instead. Cause I was like, I don't want to use up the MP like this. Right. I've only got like 10 ethers and granted that's like 2000 spell casts for Yuna. I don't think I'm going to need 2000 casts of Ultima, but that's what I ended up doing was I then taught Yuna bio and Ultima. Cause for some reason I thought I might need bio for one of the fights. It turns out I didn't really, I think you can bio, uh, Braska's final Aeon, but 
it's I ended up not using that. Uh, but I taught her. I used a special special sphere to teach her double cast as well. And so Yuna was out there just double casting Ultima. Mm. She can't double cast Holy, which mm. I was bummed about. I was sad about that. But she can't double cast Ultima, and was regularly doing anywhere from let's say eight thousand to thirteen thousand damage uh, per hit if if the target was mental broken by Orin. So my mm. my end game party was just. Titus, Yuna, Orin, and Titus just existed to haste everyone mm. and then apply other buffs and debuffs. And then occasionally I would switch in Riku if I wanted to, but most of the time it was Titus because uh, Titus is just a little bit beefier. Uh, and uh, then he just used potions and stuff. Mm. And Orin existed just to mental break. And then if I had extra turns with him, I would then armor break and then start attacking with Titus and Orin. But most of the enemies you would need armor break on them to do any real amount of damage so most of the time it was just he existed to mental break and open it up for yuna to just dump on the damage mm. like just dump it yeah. <laughs> and it worked and let me mm. tell you it worked that i did wipe on a couple bosses we'll talk about but that was that was my thing but i brought that up because i saw that you were using riku yeah and so as we'll go through my notes like there was a point where i realized just to there were, like, definitive divides between, like, how Riku would sub in for Yuna and vice versa. Because mm-hmm. Auron and Titus were kind of, like, the mainstays, and that is largely for the same reasons you said. Like, Auron is just the, the best damage dealer, and Titus has all these... Like, he has haste, and he's just, like, able to deal all these buffs, and that was that was fine on its own. What ended up switching around Yuna and Riku as my, like, the more support character was... I felt like Riku just by and large just had just more utility outside of healing because like she has, you know, the use ability and has all these other items that I've picked up that she can do things with. And I think I especially, I especially noticed it here with the sin fight because it just like, that wasn't a magic based enemy that I was fighting. And it just felt like I had more for Riku to do in that fight. But when I actually got inside sin and we were doing all those fights, I felt like Yuna... I, I ended up switching more to Yuna just because, like, she had her healing, but she also has, like, defensive stuff like Shell, Protect, Reflect, mm-hmm. and, like, those were things that were... Because, like, if I wanted Riku to use that, I had to have items to do it, and those are finite. And so, I guess, in a, in a way, like, Orin ended up being, like, the, the single most stable mainstay of my party, where Riku and Yuna were both acting as kind of the support character, and Titus was, you know, to an extent, a support character that did more damage than just by any other, anybody else other than Orin. But um, I, would, I, I guess by the end, I was trying to just be a little bit more flexible all the time, mm-hmm. and Yuna and Riku just both took on similar, like, adjacent roles. That I, It was just situational, depending on which one of them I had out. Which was did make me a little sad, because it was, it was kind of sad to, like, have, not have Yuna out all the time. She is my favorite character, but... I, I gotta say, like, Riku ended up kind of being the MVP of my playthrough of this this game, because, like, I, over the many times that I've played it, I, I have not always found the use for her that I did this time, like, where she mm-hmm. was the flex character that could do basically anything I needed her to do at any given point, and here, like, I, by the time that, you know, we were going into Sin, like, I had Riku on the front line, just going into fights, kind of, like, as a default for a bit, and was, um did not immediately have to like take her out because like I I could see things that she could do that were useful and a lot of that I think did come from like having some of the uh 
really like you know, those item dumps that we had like a lot of the end game stuff mm-hmm. kind of you know really filled out that role for her um but yeah uh really was like a, a bigger fan of using riku in this playthrough than i have in the past 20 years i think it's cool that we ended up like diverging and converging on certain characters because i think that does speak to the flexibility of this battle system mm. and the way that even playing the game as we did and largely doing the same content we can still come to two different kind of end game party approaches and and yours it sounds like was much more physical based mm-hmm. and revolved around Oren as the damage dealer and was very much about uh stacking on attack damage and, and keeping everyone healed whereas mine was more about you know Titus is just completely in support mode to the point that I was kind of wishing I had taught him like use some white magic spheres to teach mm-hmm. him things uh so I can make Yuna my sole damage dealer uh, because honestly, Lulu was the character. I mean, outside of Kimari, who just existed right. to unlock spheres for me by the end. <laughs> but mm. uh, like Lulu also fell behind. I feel yeah. at the end purely because of her celestial weapon just being difficult to obtain. But also, like she is extremely squishy, even more so than Yuna is. Yeah. You know, Yuna starts and slow. To pick up. Like yeah, yeah. It, it, it was like, it was even really slow. Yeah, and like even in the thin section, like I. I don't know. I don't really know how or what happened, but like Yuna felt like demonstrably faster than she ever had. Yes, and yeah. that was just like something that made her again like able to fill similar roles to Riku, even if you know, like her kit does not necessarily work that way. Um, on the note of Lulu, though, like I definitely like agree that she was but, you know, again other than Kamari, like she was a character that so uh, like almost like aggressively ended up on my backline instead because and it it really factored into a strategy i was trying to implement in a later fight that we'll get to which we can touch on more but me trying to use her in that way like undermine the strategy i was trying to do because like she just was not doing it in the way that i needed her to do like she was not able to keep up in the same way that everybody else was and we'll get i'll get to the specifics of that later but just like yeah like lulu like for a lot of my places of this game has been you know a very you know she is like for the like first half to 60% of the game. Like, I think she's, like, you know, a so very... Crucial. Yeah, a very important character to have and, like, you know, be uh, leveling up in a, a really meaningful way. But by the end, like, she just kind of, like, falls back because, like, you're not, you're not dealing with a lot of the same, like, enemies that have, like, these elemental weaknesses anymore. And I think that's kind right. of why she ends up falling back is because, like, she is so... You know, should you use the sphere in that way? Like, she is so specifically honed in on that, that, like, that relationship between abilities and enemies that when that starts to go away, like you just don't really have her out anymore. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer because again, as we've said multiple times, I like our character a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the fact that she falls off is definitely, you know, in terms of, I feel like in most RPGs, magic does eventually fall off at some point when elemental weaknesses stop being a thing. And that's just, I mean, we could spend all day talking about, uh, you know, strategy and, the the concept of designing an RPG and a difficulty curve in an RPG and things like that, uh, that's a whole whole bucket of worms. But I I do think that it is a bummer that Lulu falls off, and I think you can get to a point where she will match up. But even in the end game videos I was watching of people playing Final Fantasy X, they their parties were usually like Titus, Riku, Waka, because at the end of the day. You just want people that are going to be able to do the physical damage, do a ton of damage and act very consistently 
and regularly and not be limited by things like say MP cost and stuff like that. So mm. it's, it just is that at the end of the day. Um, but that's a, like the high end. I feel like I do feel at this point in the end game, Lulu doesn't have much to do right. here, which is a bummer. Um, so we, we take out, what is kind of like a, a wart on sin. I don't know. Mm. It's like, it's the, there's the sin spawn from earlier in the game. The one with the weird tentacles and stuff that we take out and then kind of a core, uh, that we take out again. And sin crashes, uh, just outside Bavel, And, uh, you know, it's, it's been weakened, but it's on the ground now, you know, we've, we've done something and we get a chance to save and, and get ready uh, and Yuna starts to wonder about Jekt. It's like, I wonder how Jekt feels um, in there. You know, does Jekt feel? And then uh, starts wondering about all the Aeon stuff and what's going to happen with Yu Yevin mm-hmm. and the Aeons and all that. You know, kind of, she starts to out loud wonder a lot of the things that are going to be questions that need to be answered in the final moments of the game. Right. <laughs> uh, and then goes back to the faith and the dreaming and what all that meant. What is you Yevin summoning? You know, if you Yevin is constantly summoning, what is you Yevin creating? And Titus mentions like, it's the dream of the faith. You know, he's creating the dream in there. And then she's like, are you going to go away when all this ends? Like very direct. Mm-hmm. And, and also like, I feel like there was not set up for it, but I feel like that's because Yuna has already kind of been putting some pieces together. Yeah. Uh, as I feel any, player who didn't know Titus's side of the story might might have been figuring out by this point uh right. with what happened at the top of Mount Gagazette and all that um you know and before he has to own up to anything Riku interrupts because hey Sin's back again Sin's moving again um and Oren's like he's waiting for you Titus we, we gotta go and Titus is like let's get in there let's go uh, I do like the line that you pointed out here that Yuna says, our father's wishes, let's make them come true. Mm. Um, it really is. It really is a game about fathers and, and children and mm. all that. Uh, so, you know, in 20 years, video games haven't come very far. <laughs> a lot of father games on this podcast, <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, I'm trying, so this this fight is such a weird one. Yeah. Uh, I was even like trying to remember how exactly it goes because I ended up beating it pretty fast with my Ultima blast blast. Um, but it's basically a whole fight where sin is slowly approaching the ship and we have to defeat sin before it gets there. Um, and it opens its mouth. Yeah. They're like it, two it does, like phases that he has of what he's doing. Yeah. So he has like an overdrive bar and stuff like that that you can kind of see like building up on him and it's basically like you just have to beat the clock essentially. Yeah. And it's an interesting fight. And so granted, it seems like we had two very different experiences with it because I with with the Ultima stuff, I just mm he didn't even get to halfway on the overdrive bar. Uh, no. I just, I, I cooked him, but uh, to the point that I didn't even know he had spells that he could cast. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, it seems like uh, you had a little bit more more difficulty with it. Yeah, I mean, and it, it was the main reason being that like I didn't realize that mental and armor break worked on him. And so yeah, when I did that, these are godsends at this yeah, point. Yeah. So when I realized that, then it was like a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But uh, it I it was like one turn away from him like using his overdrive. But uh, I, I used quick hit to get two turns before he was actually able to do his thing, and then took him out. There we go. Yeah. We'd love to see it using the systems. Uh, we deal the final blow and then decide, all right, it's time to fly into the void, uh, which is actually the the thing that it appears that Orin and, uh, and Titus went through at the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. So we fly through the void that Titus and Orin went through at the beginning of the game. So I guess we kind of have that figured out. Like this is how the transition happens between the worlds, I suppose, uh, is through sin's hole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then we're, we're, we're here where we're inside sin and holy shit, there's Seymour's eye. (laughs) Why is Seymour fucking reason? I, I cannot, I knew it was coming. I, I knew that Seymour was still in this game. I knew that there was one more fight with Zemor, but I always forget that the jerk shows up as we're heading into this final thing. He's like, oh, 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 oh. Mm. like he does like this whole laugh and we like zoom in through his eye. And I just have this feeling like everyone on board the airship being like, fucking hell. Mm. I've had enough of this dude. <laughs> yeah. As, as I memed on the internet. Um, yeah. Oh God. So we land inside Zen. Uh, there's a safe sphere inside Zen, which is very considerate of Zen. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just in case anybody ever shows up here. Yeah, multiple safe spheres, actually. Mm-hmm. And treasure chests, too. It's very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, surprising amount of architecture and thoughtfulness inside Zen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a weird area. And, and this is where I'm just going to own up that after about three fights, I turned on my no encounters mm. ar- armor because a lot of the creatures in here are cool and interesting. And I think, you know, in terms of them being potential enemies in like a post game dungeon are interesting. Like I think King behemoth is in the Omega ruins as well. Mm. And, but fighting him here where he can legitimately just team wipe you yeah. by himself and then has, isn't he the one that has like a, a death ability yeah. that will like kill your party even after you kill him? Yeah, that that was like I, you know, did one of the fights normally, and then when that happened and only Orin was still up, I was like, those are not worth fighting. Like mm-hmm. again, just like run like or put no encounter on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna be honest with you. For most of this section, these sections here, I just did not fight regular monsters so that is just not a thing yeah. i engaged with and honestly if if you are someone who did not have a lot of trouble honestly if you had trouble with the last few fights go grind somewhere else <laughs> like go yeah. go fight somewhere else i yeah. think these enemies are cool conceptually for like high level fights but as the final enemies in a final dungeon they are a pain in the butt yeah and that was what i ended up i wrote somewhere like the entire thing is just time and resource intensive and it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, so we, we run around here. There's, there's some stuff that's worth picking up. It's kind of a cool area because it's 
like all fogged and you don't have an idea of what the actual layout is. So you yep. can kind of run around and pick up treasure chests if you want. I, there were like a few things here. Uh, ironically, the stuff that's really good and worth getting in this area is also stuff that you can't take with you outside of that area. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's uh, that part is really weird. But uh, there's some nice stuff here, you know, some some high level key spheres and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of help you get some of those end game abilities if you don't have them yet. Uh, And then we finally get to some stairs and uh, they lead up to Seymour. Hey, look, it's Seymour. Oh, hey, Uh, bud. And he's just like, I'm part of Sin. But I'm part of it, so I can control it. I've got all the time in the world because you killed the only thing that could kill Sin. And Titus is like, well, we could still kill you and kill Sin. And well, Seymour's the, the, like, the, you can try. Like, well, his the, line <laughs> delivery on that is so, so fucking good. Yeah, and but the funny thing is, like, as he's describing what he's like, he's like, you know, oh, I can control Sin. And I have become one with Sin. It's chosen me. Titus is just like, you just got absorbed by Sin. Like, you are coping, bruh. Like you were it's, like, <laughs> it's actually hilarious to me because it felt like a nice little nod for our Normandy FM listeners out there that this is basically the conversation you have with the elusive man at the end of Mass Effect Three. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like Seymour is straight up on that control, <laughs> and Titus mm. is like, "No, I'm gonna shoot the reactor and." kills sin <laughs> like this is what we came here to do mm. i don't know what synthesis is we you know maybe that is like the final summon or whatever but, yeah uh so there we go we found the choices of final fantasy 10 <laughs> mass effect 3 canon ending actually decided 10 years prior in fucking final fantasy 10 <laughs> final fantasy 10 <laughs> titus pulls out a gun and shoots you yevin <laughs> <laughs> finally <laughs> um Oh man, I can't wait till we get to ten two and we get to talk about how there are just tons of guns in this universe <laughs> now, like just way more guns. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So Seymour, this fight is kind of a pain in the ass, honestly. So here's the thing: there are things that Seymour can do in this fight. There's mechanics that he can use. You can, as you note here, get him kind of stuck on one element. Uh, I didn't use reflect very much because uh, it prevented me from like hasting and things like that. Well, I mean, uh, it, and it wouldn't have been a good thing anyway because he uses those like when he's stuck on an element, he uses those spells, and he also has that like property so like he would just heal himself so i just ended up using the null spells instead right yeah so the nulls are helpful here uh but i just kind of went with my strat so i actually i had a bunch of they're like phantom armors or something at this point but they have properties like fire eater ice eater and stuff like that and so i would just try and get him stuck on the stuff that my characters would get healed by and then uh just walloped him with ultimas and Mm. that was how i dealt with it and i actually i did wipe the first time i did this fight uh just because i was not paying attention to how the wheels worked and i had some like mishaps of like trying to haste my party and then the haste getting reflected onto seymour because i Mm. forgot how haste works and and reflect works and stuff like that so i just had a bunch of 
mishaps that ended up uh, doing me in. And then when I went back, I was just like, cool, I'm just going to equip everyone with, you know, fire eater, water eater, whatever. Mm. And then uh, blast him with Ultimas. And and for some weird reason, so Ultima is a magic spell that hits everything in an enemy party. But for some reason, I think I was able to target it on only Seymour. Like, it mm. considered Seymour and then the wheels as, like, two separate parties, mm. almost. So, like, things that could hit all of one would not hit the wheels. Mm. And so I wasn't really punished for using attack all. I think if that was different, this would have been a very, like, challenging fight. But Or at least I would have had to engage with the mechanics of the fight and kind of mess with his elements. But I also feel like as as cool as this fight looks... And is the the soundtrack behind it is just ripping, and so it's some fucking Mega Man shit. Like I, at least the the remastered version of it is. I don't yes. know how it sounds. And... Oh no, it's it, it it is it is Mega Man shit. But I like the Mega Man shit. I mm-hmm. like that. It's just some bonkers, like every fucking bizarre stuff. Like all the music, like all the boss music in this final section rips so fucking yes. hard. I cannot wait to talk about what is honestly now one of my favorite fights in the game next to unaleska uh and again shout outs to the the boss fight in the unaleska theme like that when, when people were doing the the tiktok memes of somebody making the golden eye theme mm. and like kind of getting down to it that's how i felt about that like that's mm. ooh, oh it's a good beat uh and oh my god when we get to Braska's finally on oh my god um but yeah this is lame. Seymour's lame. It's not even like that memorable compared to like his yeah. his Gagazette fight and his literally all the, fight. The other three of them are just like fucking really memorable. Yeah. And this one just feels like they they hadn't wrapped up Seymour's story yet, so they had to do it. Like they, they I, I thought they had. I thought if if he died at Gagazette and that was it, done, cool. Well, I mean, well, okay, like. In theory, like, imagine when, imagine Anima being on, like, the main path of the story. Like, that had not been brought up yet, so, like, you get that extra context about him as underwhelmed as I was by the actual execution of it. Like, you add that and just, like, have it here at the end, because, like, I mean, his obsession is with, with Sin. So, like, I think, like, there is merit to him, like, showing up here and, like, trying to involve himself in something that, like, doesn't, like, the, the plot left you behind ten hours ago, but, like, it... Like, him coming in and, like, trying to fucking weasel his way into this is... I I guess that makes some sense. And I think, like... I mean, we'll get to it when we get to, like, him being sent. Like, I think, like, his... The final note that he leaves himself on, like, in his last, like, dying breath, is interesting as, like, a declaration of who that character is in this world and what he... How he views it, even if it's all bullshit. Yeah, he thinks he's... As he's, like, being sent by Yuna, is like, oh, you know, I'm glad that Yuna's the one to send me. He's, he's like, sorrow will still prevail. And Tease is like, look, I'm sending you. <laughs> I'm Like, your sin's gonna be right behind you, buddy. You have him, too. Like, we're yeah, sending them all I mean, down after you. And, I mean, even in his, like, fucked up view of all this, like, that that's interesting to me that he dies and thinks that, like, spear is still broken if you take sin away. And I think, like... That, that that as a note to like lead into a sequel is interesting because like, I think that is like kind of like and that goes into like a lot of things that we'll talk about later but like my feeling going into Ten's ending is that like it so well like leads into a sequel that was not in development at the time and like and 
you know, that's something that people say when anything that, like, has room for a sequel is made. They're like, oh, you know, there's so there's still so much to explore in this world. But I think, like, Final Fantasy X as, like, this, you know, game-long exploration of, like, breaking down a society and, like, a belief system mm-hmm. that has put this world in a literal spiral and, like, the cycle that they have all been taught is the only way this could be. Like, the game ends the cycle and then, like, just ends. Like, then the game is over. And I think that, like... It, mm. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to... We're going to put a pin in this, and we'll get back to it. Okay. Yeah, when yeah we we'll come back it. to it. Yeah. Come back to it. Um, so, yeah, we, we drop Seymour, finally, for, for once. He's gone. He's just gone. The last note I'll say about Seymour is on the anima note that you mentioned, it would have been nice if he wasn't... And, you know, maybe there's some thematic idea to him being so focused on the elements and all that, and that he is so beholden to... Uh, an earthly understanding of magic and can't comprehend, you know, the larger stuff. You know, maybe there's like some really deep, like thematic stuff you could extrapolate from that. Uh, but really I would have liked to have seen either no weird elemental stuff here, because even though I do think the wheels are kind of cool, they also just don't feel that interesting, especially at a point in the game where it feels like we've left right. the elemental stuff behind. And also, it would it's have like, been nice to incorporate Anima in some way and incorporate his mother and even his father in some way who were like major parts of his story and just kind of feel left by the wayside here. It would have been mm-hmm. interesting to incorporate that part. I didn't try summoning Anima against him. I don't know if there's a special thing that happens if you do mm-hmm. that. But... I'm not sure. It, it's it, like, as we're talking about now, like it feels like the four times you fight him, like there are two like distinct kind of like ways that he functions as a boss that, like, because, you know, the first time you fight him, he is using elemental magic, and he, like, he operates on, like, a, like, he uses them in, like, a certain order, and, you know, that is, like, a strategy that you weave into, like, you nullify, like, the thing that you know he's going to use next or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, like, it does not, it does not feel like a natural evolution of, like, the way, it, like, the, the second time and the third time you fought him, they felt like they were building upon a lot of the same ideas of, like, him dismissing aeons having this like weird like parasite thing that comes out of him that you can right. that you can attack that absorbed hp from him if you if you beat it and then here it's just like they went back to what seems like a more natural evolution of the makalania fight versus you know the other two things the more interesting fights that you had along yeah. the way so it's just a weird thing i don't i don't know i define seymour by his use of elemental magic and his use of helpers mm-hmm. and so like I guess in that respect, the wheels kind of make sense, but also they just kind of feel mini gameish. The gag is that fight feels like what should it, what should have been his last fight, and the wheel fight feels like what should have been his second or third yeah. fight. Is kind of where I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, for as as grand a design as it is, and it is a wonderful design, I think, but uh, it it just in practice ends up not being exactly what I wanted from a finale here with Seymour. Yeah. Um. So anyways, then we go through more hallways. <laughs> and then we fight more enemies. Uh, we avoid all of them. Uh, just run away from every single one of them because fuck that shit. <laughs> mm. uh, we get to the final save sphere. This is the point of no return. The, the game doesn't really signpost it that well. Yeah. You, you kind of do need to know. There's like a pause as you head up towards it, which I feel is like maybe them being like, hey, maybe think about this before you do it. But this is like the final save sphere. Uh, once you go into the pillar that comes down, you're kind of in this like dream like city at this point where there are 
shifting moving platforms and things like that but you're still kind of in this almost dream sphere uh but then we head into the pillar and uh god this section's so weird the like pick up things while yeah. icicles of enemy encounters attack you and like you get some really useful stuff here like mm. the equipment you get here if you don't have the celestial weapons some of the best equipment you could probably have at this point mm. in the game for yeah, everyone I, involved. I used one of the uh, the white magic spheres that was here and finally taught you know holy at the very end. Hell yeah. Uh it's it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, and it, it was kind I, of what I was referring to earlier was like, hey, here's a bunch of equipment that you will only be able to use in the final right. fights of the game because at the point that you get them, you are locked in. You can't go back. So right. it is kind of weird that this stuff is here like that. Yeah. And like, it's not even like you get them, but you have to like, I mean, and it's, person... it's required that you get them too. <laughs> yeah. But like, also like nobody that has not already played this game or at least this section is going to know like, Oh, I need to fucking equip this right now. Like in this very moment. Um, cause like you said, it doesn't really signpost where you're going, like that you were headed to the end. It, it really doesn't even like tell you why you need to do this part. Like you need to pick up 10 items as icicles of enemy encounters try to pop up from the ground and attack you. And once you get all 10, you move on to the next part. As, as the like, camera no... is like circling around in a way that is like super weird that. Oh yeah. Like it makes it really hard to avoid some of these fights. Yeah. And mm, weird. Like I just, it's weird. I don't get it. Yeah. I was, again, we could use the day we made this to, I don't know, come up with some mom names. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, really, really tighten the game up a little bit. Uh, anyways, once we're out of that weird shit, we're we're in what looks like the ruins of the Xanarkand baseball, uh, baseball, 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 yeah, the baseball Xanarkand baseball. Love the Abe's, go Abe's, mm-hmm. let's go Abe's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> God damn it. I can't stop thinking about Jack being like, it's not about sin or spiritus. It's about the Abes. Let's go, Abes. <laughs> In a home run, Abes. <laughs> uh, we're in the Blitzball Stadium, and, and Jack is hanging out. And so we get, like, a moment to set our party and get set and then move forward. And they kind of, you know, Oren is kind of the first person to really address Jack is like, you know, sorry for being late and all that. Uh, and then Jack notes that Titus Titus. Damn, finally, you almost got a fucking. Finally slipped. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Two hours in. Uh, Titus has grown. Uh, he's like, you're all bones. You've been eating right. Um, and he makes a joke about how he's still bigger because he's sin. Uh, and Titus, you know. As always, I hate you, Dad. And and Jack's like, you know what you gotta do. The the hymn's going. Pretty soon, I'm gonna be me. And I won't be able to hold myself back. You know what that means. I'm sorry. And then Jack transforms into Baraska's final Aeon. The song from the beginning of the game <laughs> kicks in growling heavy metal music kicks off 
Let's go, baby. Oh, God, this boss fight. I love this boss fight. I wiped in this boss fight and was almost not mad about it because it meant <laughs> I got to see this whole part again. Uh, oh, what? I mean, let's let's start with the obvious. We've got we get to see Braska's final Aeon, mm. which is this giant hulking almost like I would almost compare it to Rama from, mm. you know, Final Fantasy. But, you know, most people probably know his portrayal in Final Fantasy 15 as this giant uh, or not Rama uh, Gaia, uh, this this giant hulking earthen monstrosity of a character uh and like ject kind of has that feeling of just being you know the size of atlas you know holding Mm. up the globe and all that he's huge and uh the giant xanarkin abe's logo uh in the background and all of xanarkin lighting up around him and all that it's just Mm. it's so cool and there's also like some pillars that show up this is maybe one of the things i don't like about these end game fights is just two random pillars kind of showing up i know they eventually do mean something but they're just kind of there <laughs> and their whole mechanic serves to just like juice him up with power and overdrive and heal him um, yeah and heal him uh, but for like 1500 it's like nothing uh at this point i was like one auto attack from one of my characters was offsetting the healing um mm. so i was like uh it's it's like the overdrive that's scary because he's got a few overdrive moves that are pretty powerful especially once he gets to the second stage yeah. and pulls a freaking sword out of his chest mm. um and that was what wiped me is he when he gets that attack at the end like he starts instead of just hitting one person he can like cleave your entire yeah. party and he got two turns in a row of that and just wiped me out mm. and i was like well okay then damn um yeah i am oh I mean, I, I had a few things that stuck out to me. So, like, I, this is, like, a small, like, weird thing about, like, uh, I'm fucking neurotic, and I just, like, these, they're, like, these small little things that, like, are interesting to me or cool to me. It's, like, I like that they call the boss fight Braska's final Aeon and not, like, mm-hmm. Jekt. Right. And, like, it's one of those things where, like, a small, subtle thing of, like, how you refer to something just, like, makes it feel significant in a way. Like, the all, like the other comparison that, like, comes to mind is, like, how when you first summon Shiva, you don't know her name. Yes. It just yeah. has, like, question marks. And it's, like, these small details, like, they communicate, like, through like through the menus of how you engage with it. Just, like, that's, that's a cool little thing to me. Like, that they, and it's not like, you know, the various times you fought Seymour, like, he has Seymour, like, some other fucking word that comes after it. And, like, it just, that doesn't fucking mean anything. Like, that doesn't really, like, communicate something. At least not, like, you know, to everybody who... Like doesn't know like yeah, the yeah, no one's, of, like the, the subtitle or whatever. No one's sitting back there. It's like oh, it's Seymour C- Morphiculus. Like that's finally. Yeah, um, that was like one of the first like small cool things that just like I that tickles my brain because I'm fucking weird sometimes. Um, the fight though, like and also like well, Otherworld as a song, as like I said back in like the first episode of our Final Fantasy X season, like I. I don't know outside of the context of this game if I would really give a shit about that song because like it is hitting on a lot of notes of things I don't really care for in music a lot. But um, it's been like just long enough for them to bring that back and it feel it feels significant because like that was being like we last heard that song in Xanarkin and it was signifying Jekt attacking something, and so like to bring it back here I'm just like, yeah, fuck yeah, like it's I'm, like the I'm soundtrack to destruction. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. As for the fight, though, like, I, I've i always found this fight, like, I, I don't have, like, enough celestial weapons for it to be, like, you know, 
nothing. Like, you know, this fucking easy breezy fight that it is for some people. But by this point, it's like, I've always had some difficulty with it. And for a long time, it has been me just kind of, like, lucking out in terms of, like, you know, hitting, like... Like, I remember when I played it last year, um, right, right after Final Fantasy VII Remake, I, the, I lucked out in that Waka's Overdrive. Uh, I got, like, you know, a, a perfect slot. And so, like, it just did just enough damage to take him out when I was, like, very close to losing. Um, what I ended up doing here was actually a, um, a, a strategy that was brought up on the Final Fantasy Wiki, and it's it was why I went back and did more of those Chocobo races, because, like, you get these things that are, like, um, Wings to Discovery, or Wings of Discovery. I, I don't know if what I wrote in my notes is right. But using two of those with Riku's mix will make your mm-hmm. entire party do 9,909 damage. And so what I did... Or my intention initially, and this will bring it back to Lulu, like, what I initially wanted to do was for her, like, on top of what I actually ended up doing, I wanted her to be able to use, like, a Fire uh, Fury um, Overdrive, mm. which would have been, like, seven hits, and but that would, would each of them would have been 10,000 damage, which would have mm-hmm. been, you know, something that would have taken him out. But she was so weak, because, like, I just hadn't been using her because in, like, the latter half of the game, because, you know, all the reasons I said earlier. So I ended up Lucking out though, because what I had done is I saved all my Aeons and their overdrives for the second, uh, the second stage of fighting Jack, mm-hmm. and so I was able to use Riku's overdrive to use Tidus's slice and dice, which is like you know six or seven hits, yeah, um, each each for like ten thousand damage, and then I just brought out Bahamut uh, with his overdrive and then took him out and the, at the very end, and that is probably like now that I've like formulated this. Uh, plan in my brain. I'm gonna use that any future time that I play this game because I've I've kind of always been lacking in like a really definitive strategy for Brosky's final eye on it. It's just kind of been like okay, I'm gonna throw damage and heal as because like he's actually like very status effect heavy. Like I, and I'd forgotten some of that. Like uh, a lot of stuff that he does. Like you know he can petrify you in one of like his simplest attacks and. If that if he even gets like a follow up on that, he will break the person and you will be out a party member for the rest of the fight. So like, mm-hmm. uh, for me it was just a matter of like sur- like you know dealing damage and surviving for that first uh, that first stage, and then it was bringing out all these overdrives at the end, in ways that now that I had this Riku mix that was basically super- made everything I did fucking super powered. Um, right, but it very you easy. use the systems. So you yeah. use the systems of the game available to you, and so like, for me. I had previously, as I felt, cheesed a bunch of fights and got through them thanks to my Super Ultima strategy. Mm. But I actually hit a wall here because, and this is something I had to use the guide that I mentioned earlier in this uh, in this recording to to figure out when you kill if you overkill the uh, pagodas, the pillars, uh, they will come back with more HP and mm. will be stronger every time they come yep. back. So me actually using Ultima over and over and over again was making them harder and harder to kill to the point that then I was having to use multiple turns to keep up and then having, you know, meanwhile, Jack just kidding, kept getting more and more powerful because I used talk up too early, which during this yep. fight you can talk uh, to Jack twice to uh, lower his power and his overdrive gauge. Mm. gauge. Uh, and it's... I had to like slow down and think about this fight. And so I was, I started out, I basically the whole first stage, I only used holy from, you know, and tried to like time it up to where I would have 
because uh, also I think whenever he gets cured by the pagodas, he loses any uh, like defects that he had. Mm-hmm. So like mental break, armor break, that sort of thing. Yep. So I'd have to time them up to either take out the pagodas and then hit with Orin and start stacking on the damage or just find little windows in which I could sneak a holy or two in and then kind of chip away at him. And then once the sword came out, that's when I started, you know, firing off with all this stuff. And I didn't have any Aeons at overdrive. I also didn't have Riku at an overdrive. So I didn't have those options available to me. So I was just like, well, got to work with what I got because mm. I don't really want to go back to the save sphere and grind that stuff out in this area because it's not a good area to grind that stuff out in. So uh, it was it was a really fun and interesting boss fight because it really did make me have to take myself off autopilot a little mm. bit and think. Um, yep. And just one thing, this is completely non sequitur, but I was thinking about it because I was thinking about the scene where where Otherworld, this song first starts playing and the whole destruction of Xanarkand that we first saw. And I knew this was a lingering thing for me. And so please feel free to laugh at me if I'm stupid. And this is something I was supposed to have put together, but have not put together by now. But I was always like, how did Orin know when Sin was going to attack? And why did Sin wait to attack and stuff like that? Is it supposed to be that that's the calm has ended and now Jekt has b- become sin and then comes for Titus? Yeah. L- like once. So that is like literally a 10 year gap. So Orin knew when sin was going to come back and then mm. come for Titus. Is that what that whole thing was supposed to be? That was my understanding of it. Okay. I don't know if that's explicit text, right. but I just now put that together and <laughs> it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> I'm sitting here like, oh my god, <laughs> it's been ten years, uh, it's been twenty years, and I just now figured that out. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this game that keeps on giving to morons like me. Uh, so we finish him off. Uh, he loses his form, uh, and we see you, Yevin, this this weird looking thing, leave his body, and Titus runs up to catch him, and they have this this very sentimental moment where. Uh, Jack is like, see, you're crying. You're always crying. Why you got to be crying? And we get one in maybe the most bizarre moment of here's a really high fidelity FMV in the middle of a cutscene. We get one of Titus just crying before it then goes back to normal in-game engine graphics. Uh, mm-hmm. Just split second. Like here, we just had some budget to spend here. I guess. I think. I mean, I think they wanted to like capture him crying and say, "But they I didn't hate you. show Jack. I wanted to see yeah, super that was, high definition Jack. That was that. That was something that like occurred to me in the midst of all of this. Is that they did not have a higher res model for Jack. Like it was like yeah. on par with the party members, and that's just like one of the things we're like, and that that's going to be an issue in ten two as well. Where like the party members have. Like they're like these stages of fidelity of their models that they use, and nobody mm-hmm. else does. And Seymour had one like that was yeah. on that level, but Jack doesn't. And yeah, weird thing. Yeah, Seymour gets one. Anima gets one. Jack doesn't get one. Can't believe Titus's mother doesn't get one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and weirdly looks like Yuna. But we're not, we're not gonna reflect on that. <laughs> um. So, yeah, we we have this this death scene where, you know, Jack is like, save it for later. We got more to do. Uh, and 
Tita says, you know, for the first time, I'm glad to have you as my father. Um, and as Yuna starts to try and like, either I'm guessing send him, uh, he's like, there's no time. And we see you, Yevon, Jekt, uh, disappears into Pyreflies and you, Yevon, descends upon us and, uh, we enter into a very interesting section of the game where it's, it, Some it's so it bizarre. Some call the best part of the game. It's, it, I'm not saying, I, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying this is so, so interesting of a way, because honestly, like Broska's final Aeon could have been the last boss of the game. It could have just ended. And there's even there. like a, technically it is, because we can't yeah. lose. Yeah. So we go in, we go into a fight where we just have auto life, auto full life on everybody. If you go down, you will get revived. This is a no lose situation. It's and like it's entirely like, I do appreciate that they did that. Honestly. Yeah. That's nice. It's nice that they did that. Um, so at this point we, we go into this weird thing where you Yevin has kind of got us in a cosmic world and Yuna's like, oh, I gotta summon the Aeons. And if we kill, if we summon the Aeons and kill all of them, because basically when we summon them, Yu Yevon's gonna try and grasp onto them as a new host. But if we kill every Aeon that exists, there's not anything left for Yu Yevon to grasp onto. I feel like that's kind of the mm. logic that we're going to use here. Uh, we have to destroy summoning as a whole as as an art um and, and the faith and the aeons along with it so you yevon has nothing left uh and so we go down our list the magus sisters anima yojimbo bahamut shiva ixion ifrit and even veil for we summon them and it's it, the way they frame it is all of the party the entire party is standing on one side of the field and yuna's on the other side facing them and just summoning down mm. these aeons for the party to murder <laughs> and it is after everyone dies they're not buffed that's the weird part yeah. here i thought for me is that these are not buffed so they were all dying in like one hit for me right. uh and uh but it was kind of like it was i, I don't know it's this moment, the moment where it hit me was, it was after I had summoned Shiva. You know, Shiva was this big moment that we talked about in mm. 10 where it felt like Yuna came into her own as a strong, confident summoner that's going to be able to fight her own battles. And the big moment where Seymour lets loose with Anima, you know, his trump card. And then Yuna's like, I've got something of my own and brings in Shiva and we stand up to him and we beat him on, on his own turf his own faith, his own final Aeon, we defeat it. And uh, here's Shiva, and we have to kill her. Mm-hmm. And Yuna, in my case, kills her, uses Ultima and kills her. Mm-hmm. And uh, after every Aeon death, there's like a moment where Yuna just kind of like pauses mm-hmm. and is like, you can kind of see the weight of what's happening because I'm sure for all of them, this is an emotional moment, but for Yuna, especially these are spirits that she has worked with, that she has talked to, that she has spoken with, that she has a bond with. Mm-hmm. 
and especially for some of them like Shiva or Bahamut or Valefor, they are intrinsic parts of her journey. And it, it feels, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you do it like I did where uh, I went from the bottom up. So Valefor was my last one mm-hmm. that I killed. Um, it feels like you're just going back through the game and right. like you're treading back through your journey and you're also undoing the pilgrimage Mm-hmm. as it stands like aeon by aeon by aeon it's incredible it's, yeah it's, it's really cool because like you, you can imagine a version of this that was like trimmed down or like not like because like it's agonizing they make you go like they make you go down the list and like they gray out the names and like that's each subsequent fight yuna is getting progressively progressively more, more worn down but then she gets back up she gets worn down she gets back up and it's also playing like I think my favorite song of the game, which is a, a concert of Aeons, which uh, starts out with a um, like a horn version of the Hymn of the Faith, and then kind of like becomes this like re- really energetic final boss fight. I mean, it's not the, not the final boss fight, but like you know, a song befitting of a final boss fight, and mm-hmm. it's just like a really because like it's, it, the whole thing is symbolic, right? Because like you can't die, like and even like they don't do anything to make. That fighting the Aeon is actually challenging because, like, if you've got, you know, somebody that can, you know, deal a hit more than, like, however many thousand damage that they have of their HP. Because, again, as we've talked about, these things are last cannons. Like, that, that is, like, right, their mechanical right. function. is that they, have, they don't usually get to take a lot of hits, but they deal a lot of damage when they're out. And so, like, you know, by everything that we've seen at this point, we know that they are going to go down fairly easily. It's just, like, really stellar and, like, the way it's using the mechanics to, like, symbolize something and make you sit with every painful moment of it and it's kind of it's honestly like my single favorite moment in the game just because like it is like making you like literally tear down like you're tear apart like these friends of yours that you've had because you know it is the only way to end the cycle like you have to do it in the most painful way that they can possibly conceive in the mechanics of the games they have it's just fucking brilliant. Like I, it's like I get choked up and emotional thinking about it because like it is like the, the game is just like you know with, with things like we talk about with Seymour, like him like making his final declaration as he goes away, like and and like I talked about with the Unalaska stuff, like that in of itself is like a gameplay moment that is symbolizing something so important in that world. I feel like Ten's final like you know five ten hours. No, it's not. It's definitely not ten hours. Like five. Like last five hours. It's just like constantly like putting you in these situations that they can make a fight symbolize something greater than the mechanics of it and yeah it's um pretty fucking incredible like i don't think yeah. anything that i have played from the series since has ever even like, i mean you know broadly i think final fantasy 10 is like nothing has lived up to 10 and 2 in my brain but also like that moment of like making you like really just like do the most fucking agonizing thing they can possibly think of and making it like this really important touchstone of the story and use of its mechanics and yeah, I just I'm, I'm gonna keep fucking rambling about it if I keep thinking about it too much, for too fucking long. But like, it's, it, yeah, it's just beautiful symbolically. I think the only thing, if I had to, if I had to find a nitpick here, is that rather than having the menu, I kind of wish that you were legitimately summoning them as Yuna and like bringing them into mm-hmm. the fight. I think it was probably just technical limitations that stop that because then you would have had a weird situation of Yuna needing to switch back on parties and stuff like that. Uh, 
you know, they've done situations of like, here's characters that are in your party or not in your party that, you know, like Seymour and Sid and things like that. But, uh, I would have almost liked it to have been in that user interface just so it would have been that feeling of you're summoning them for the last time. Uh, but even still, that's like the minorest of mm. nitpicks and it still works so well here. And we, we end it with, uh, after we've killed all the Aeons, all that's left is Yu Yevon and he's a parasite. I mean, he's basically a giant wood tick. Mm. Um, and you know, it's, it's suitable. This is a creature that has just become nothing, you know, not even you know, the idea of summoning you'd, th- you'd think would be like creation. Right. But really it's just eating mm. the despair and destruction of everything around it to create something. Hey, <laughs> wonder if that's relevant in today's world. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, like it literally is just a parasite that feeds off, the life force of other things in the world to create something within itself to try and please itself, to try and Mm -hmm. have that feeling of creation and stuff, but it does not create anything in and of itself. You know, lots of fiction has addressed this sort of stuff. Like the first thing that comes to mind for me is like full metal alchemist brotherhood talks a lot about this idea of what it means to bring things into the world rather than take things from the world mm. and, and the give and take between man and nature and, and between man and other man and stuff like that. But um, it's, I I do like that in this last fight, you Yevon is pathetic and we'll mm. talk about, we'll talk about the lead into the fight in a second, but I just wanted to talk about the actual fight because it is like a joke of a fight. It is. Right. It's a like, puzzle. There's, it's not a fight. It, yeah, it's you figure out one thing, which is just that it casts cure on itself. And again, you can't die in this fight, so you will figure it out eventually. And you know, you can either brute force it, or you just cast reflect on it and have it bounce all of its cures back onto you, and you just beat it to death, mm. <laughs> and and that's it. And we destroy the parasite. And honestly, like in any other game, I think this sort of no loss final boss would feel like a, a bit of a wet fart, but we've overcome, we've overcome the greatest thing in our path. We literally have killed sin already and reducing what is a parasite down to what it really is. Mm-hmm. And having it be this final boss is like, I, I, I think it feels thematically right. It yeah. feels good For sure. as, as a fight. So even though it's, even though Broska's final Aeon is the last real challenge in this game, you know, outside of the post game bosses and stuff like that. But like, even though that is the last real fight of the game, that is also representative of like the people of this world are the last real obstacle. And you Yevon is nothing. Mm-hmm. You Yevon has nothing if it has nothing else to latch onto. Right. So it's scary when it's in the body of Broska's final Aeon, but by itself, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a parasite. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, but before that fight happens, as Yu Yevon descends, Titus huddles everyone up for the final fight and says, hey, let's make this a good one because this is the last time we're going to fight together. And that's when he reveals to everyone that after Yu Yevon dies, the faith will wake up. And because he's part of this dream, Xanarkins, he will disappear. And Yuna kind of knowingly has figured it out at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, Tita says, I'm saying goodbye. It's selfish, but this is my story. 
And, you know, that's been a recurring theme up to this point. Like, this is my story. This is our story. Whose story is it? Who's the boss? But um, it's, I do like that moment of Titus being like, I'm saying goodbye on my terms. And like, in the way that, you know, was, was willing to throw her life away for a system that was broken uh, just for, you know, 10 years of peace, Titus throwing away his existence, you know, to bring about eternal peace for this world feels like a good inversion of this. Mm. And like, you know, and he's doing it with full knowledge of what's going to happen. And he's still ready to just do it all. I, I agree that it works like in terms of like, you know, having this like inverse subversion of what you set out to do initially. I, Mm -hmm. I still don't really feel like the dreams Anakin and like, you know, I, I mentioned you know when this first got brought up at the uh, the Gaga Set episode. It's like it feels like twisting the knife in a way that doesn't feel like it adds much to me in terms of like you know you, you put this kid through the fucking ringer for thirty hours and then you tell him he's not real and that in order for him to like in order for this world to survive he has to disappear. And I, well, it's not that he's not real. He does exist in the way that Veilfor exists, in the way that Bahamut exists. Well, it's just that the way he exists is tied directly to the existence of another person. Like semantics aside, like you you tell him that like his life is forfeit for this world to continue in a way that is not yeah. attached to this cycle. And I again, I just don't feel like that adds much to anything beyond like create like you know th- they work within the rules of their world, and like it creates a very sad and a very effective scene that we're gonna get to in a second. But I guess I'll say I'm glad that Ten Two addresses that as well in a way like it uh, and again like we'll hold off a lot we'll, of that we'll off until that. we get to yeah. 10 2 but like i i i feel like broadly the, the ending of this game feels different to me like heading directly into 10 2 and thinking about the ways that that game kind of addresses the fatalism of all of this in a way that feels like a lot of because like ultimately like yes they are ending the cycle but they are still in a way beholden to it at this point or at least one character specifically um and you know by extension the people that care about him are beholden to it in a way because they can't you know rid the world of this without also losing somebody that they care about and i think you know that that plays into like a lot of this sacrifice like you know it's, it's been a theme of this like sacrificing things for the greater good of, of everyone around you um and so i think tend to being selfish and, like, being willing to, like, assert that you want things for yourself in this world, even though, like, everything that you've been ever been told about your life and your reason, for, like, your duty to this world is to sacrifice for others. And to have a game that, like, came out that kind of said, like, you know, maybe that was the way forward at that point, but it doesn't have to be the way forward for the rest of our lives um, is why I, I think I'm, like, all the things that I'm saying right now, don't really matter in the end, but it's just like, it is my feeling mm-hmm. in the chronological way that we go about this podcast yeah. where yeah. like, I feel like that at the end, I don't ever feel like Tita's sacrifice felt like it added anything to this game beyond just it being fucking sad in the end. Well, what it, what it does for me is it, it also brings in the fact that the faith are, are still stuck in this. And I, you know, there is a world where somehow, you know, maybe they just kill sin and they find a new way of killing sin and they could theoretically 
you know, it's this is not an actual possibility because Titus is Titus, but like there, there's a point in this game where he could have accepted and he and Jekt both could have, you know, wanted to stay alive and that would have been at the cost of the faith staying there. And their choice is to instead free everyone. Free, you know, if somehow the faith could have kept dreaming and not been awoken, Titus and Jekt could have continued existing. Dream Xanarkin could have continued existing somehow. But it was better that it not be that way because it's it's better for the faith to move on. And I do feel like this ending has a different connotation now that we have extended parts after it. And there is an element of, you know, Romeo and Juliet, you know, the, the lovers that can never be together. Mm. And, uh, you know, that is, I am thinking a lot about the matrix resurrections right now. Cause this hits the same exact notes, mm. uh, but it's, it is the idea. And I think they ultimately settle on similar ideas of it's, they're going to find a way because this is not, these are not people that have ever given up on mm-hmm. their desires to want to move forward. I feel like even if X2 at 10 to, sorry, <laughs> and eternal calm had not existed after this, we still get the stinger that we have at the end. Mm-hmm. And there's still like an element of, you know, what has ever stopped these characters before right. you know there is some hope and if even if that hope is bittersweet it still exists mm-hmm. and I, I don't know it's i'm also just a sucker for sad shit at the end of the day oh, so maybe oh. that's why <laughs> i mean like i i am too and like i certainly like i just it, it, it is like, I, like I, ten two though it is completely different yeah and, and i just think like like i said it, it feels like twisting the knife in a way that i feel like i don't know that buyer's remorse is the way that i would say that square enix maybe felt about it but i felt like I, I feel like you know, to spend this in a more positive light, I think collectively 10 and 10 2 together make, like, one, it makes it palatable, and two, it just feels like it really brings home a lot of the things that 10 is, you know, like, like, like you said, like, what has ever stopped these people from trying to find another way forward mm-hmm. in the face of, like, fate telling them no other way is possible. Um, so, yeah, we'll just, we'll put a pen in that for a few fucking months. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, now we're at the end. I mean, we see Spira, everyone celebrating, Sin fading into the distance. We get to zoom out to Besaid, and uh, people are, are celebrating. We see the Chocobo Knights and, and whoever survived the Crusaders uh, saluting and the faith turning into empty statues and, and becoming, you know, sleeping again, turning to stone. And yuna inside sin sending this massive mass of sin around them and of course Orin starts walking forward and the pyroflies are flowing away from him and he tells you know don't stop you know this is my time i'm done like i did what i meant to do Mm -hmm. i fulfilled my promises and meant you know i got this all done i like the little the little kind of fist bump he gives kimari Mm -hmm. he's real nice uh, like a nice little recognition of those two. Like they, they got kind of a, a bromance that I like. Uh, <laughs> uh, we need, we need a side game with just those two. <laughs> um, he says, you know, it's your world now. My generation's done. Mm-hmm. It's time for somebody else to take the reins and, and disappears off into the night. And uh, we even see, and this is really funny because at this point, PlayStation was like, you do not get to record anymore at this point. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> really, I, really dumb in this game. 
And I don't, I don't know if that like applies to like the Switch or Xbox versions of this either. I was, I would assume it does, but like, I don't know. I, like, I don't know. Why can I not record a twenty-year-old game? Like, why? Like, what are you afraid of me spoiling? Like, what? What is? Square, game sh- game shouldn't do that. Game, should, Atlas, game shouldn't fucking do that. Stop being fucking weird, companies. Well, I mean, there's always way to, ways to subvert it too, and I think it's weirder when like. I, I don't particularly mind it if they just have it for, say, like a week and then lift it. You know, that's one thing for them to be like, oh, we just didn't want spoilers out there. And, you know, it is annoying, but I get it, uh, especially for, you know, games like you know, where you have a big. Tw- I mean, how many how many Final Fantasies can you think of where the protagonist just straight up dies at the end? Like mm. that's, you know, it's it's kind of a, a shocker, you know, even though we now have ten two and other stuff. But at the time, you know, holy crap, the protagonist just dies at the end, um, along with multiple other characters. <laughs> and, uh, it's kind of this is not a it's not a clean resolution in the traditional sense. So uh, but also, yeah, at this point, it's a 20 year old game where you block in the FMV of all the aeons going up into the sky and disappearing uh, there magical forms anima floating which is hilarious to me (laughs) (laughs) just looks so funny and i love it um and they all kind of burst into pyreflies like fireworks it's this big celebration and they're all standing up on the airship just basking in all of it uh but then as the faith and gagaset start to disappear all the the memories of people start to flow up like bubbles and fade away and we even see titus among them uh, and Tinas back on the ship starts to back to the future fade away too. Uh, and Yuna like doesn't want to accept it. And, you know, she's not happy about it. And Tinas is like, I'm sorry, I couldn't show you Xanarkand. You know, Riku's saying, We're going to see you again. But he starts to walk off into the distance. And then Yuna suddenly stomps her foot and runs after him, leaps, leaps in the air to grab him and falls right through him. It's a heartbreaker, even doubled by the moment where she stands up and facing away says, I, I love you. And Titus comes up and wraps his ethereal arms around her. And that's it. He, he leaps off into the abyss after that and does a dive through. And we see Braska and Oren and Jekt and he high fives Jekt at the end. And that's, that's Titus right there. That can, this part gets me every goddamn mm-hmm. time. It, it slams like a truck. <laughs> it is. I know it's coming. Mm-hmm. I know. And yet, mm, every time. In a game of iconic moments, it is an iconic moment. Yes. Yes. And, and like, the Aeon part, I honestly think is a little goofy, you know, especially after we've had such a goodbye to them that we then see them again is kind of weird. But the the section with Yuna and Titus, I mean, this is, you know, this is their, their big moment, their big last moment. And I also love him diving, basically diving into the far plane. Mm. And I like that Braska is there. That's nice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a neat little moment of like, Hey, you know, Braska was a dude that was trying to do all right too. I, I oddly like have complicated feelings about Braska at the end of the day, but um, I like that he is kind of a complicated character trying to do his best, but 
also ultimately like still beholden to the restraints mm-hmm. of the time. Right. I feel like a lot of his character, we haven't talked about it much. So that's why I'm doing it right now. No. Um, I feel like a lot of his character is informed by the fact that he wants to change the world, but he has his daughter. And so I think a lot of his decisions end up being like, if he can afford just some time for his daughter, he'll do it over mm-hmm. like trying to do something that could destroy the world. If he, if he messes it up and that gives Yuna the ability to then rise above and beyond. And I, I don't know, there's it, something touching about that story, I think. And, and ultimately I really enjoy that, that trio, that previous summoner trio of Braska, Jack and Oren a lot and just kind of what they end up being to the generation after them. It's, yeah. It's nice I mean, note to end that on. Because, I mean, even even though, like, they... I don't want to say, like, they fed into the cycle, but, like, they did what they thought they had to while also, like, being the people. To, like, I mean, ultimately, like, Yuna and Titus don't get to the conclusion they do unless, like, the people before them say enough and Oren mm-hmm. does what he does. And Oren so, like, and Jekt, yeah. like, you know, Jekt setting things up, too, like... Mm. Even Braska, to some extent, like leaving. Yeah, because I mean, like if if, like if if Jack wasn't thin, none of this would have happened, and Braska made that happen. So mm-hmm. all three of them, in their in their own ways, played their part. You have to wonder if there was some wisdom in making Jack uh, sin. Then mm. you know, what did they know of of Xanderkin, and did they have any inkling of what they could do in the meantime? I mean, they walked um, up Gagazette, too. Sam's breathing. Yeah, Jack would, probably knew something. Yeah. So we we pan out then, and we, we, we go out to see Yuna on the coast. Uh, and she's blowing the whistle out into the distance. Uh, and after a while, Lulu shows up and says, it's time. You got to address the people of Spira. So Yuna steps out into that same stadium that we saw in Luca before. And everyone's cheering and celebrating. And Yuna gives a big speech, you know, saying everyone has lost something. Everyone, you know, homes, dreams, friends. Now, Sin is dead. Spira is ours. And we can build for you know, the first time in our lives. We can build and rebuild and, and make something last without the threat of Sin. And... Uh, she mentions, you know, just one more thing, the people and the friends that we've lost and the dreams that have faded, you know, she mentions kind of in a, in a side recognition of Titus, mm-hmm. never forget them. Uh, and then we cut into credits and then one final scene, we see Titus floating down to the heart, grabs a keyblade. It's kingdom hearts. <laughs> <Band Nuts. laughs> Titus floating in water. Uh, it's unclear where, but he kind of sees something and looks up and starts to swim towards a theoretical surface. And yeah, it it, it feels like sequel bait. And also, was this... I can't remember. Was this scene originally in 10? Like, did they do this all the way back then? Or I, it, is this another... I believe it was in the end. Okay. Well, okay, I hold, thought, now I'm, thought now I'm curious because like... I thought it was, but I didn't know for sure. Because, well, hold on. Okay, I have to, I have to know this now. Um yeah. Because that is inter- the thing that's interesting about ten now is that like it ostensibly wasn't being set up for a sequel, but it um really fucking does lead it like I don't know like it, it looks it looks like it was there it looks like it was there before ten two I'm seeing a lot of messages saying like hey that's because uh, a lot of people are like hey what did this mean back before you know ten two ever came around and they were like, it just kind of means whatever you want it to mean. 
Um, so maybe they were already thinking of a sequel at the time, but, uh, yeah. or at least some, some like, you know, glimmer of hope to offset right. all that, <laughs> that just happened. But like, um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't reset the idea that like Titus exists in some form right now. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to be a sequel. It doesn't need to be a lead in, but like it is something. Right. And so here we are, the end of Final Fantasy X. Ken, what are your last thoughts on the game as we're here? Do we have any? I feel like we have talked a lot about Yeah, I feel like we did. And, and like, look at my notes. I'm like, we kind of touched on a lot of this before. Um, I think separate from the grander Final Fantasy X universe, like it, it is just like such a neatly concise and confident Final Fantasy game that I don't feel like we have had kind of sense. I mean, tend to, I think, is just as... Maybe not as concise because of the nature of that game structure, but, like, just as, like, confidently uh, sort of executing upon an idea. I don't know. Like, it's, like I think that is kind of my my standalone takeaway, but from 10 is that I don't think the, the series has been able to recapture it, at least in terms of, like, having this very clear vision, this very coherent understanding of the world that it's creating and, like, how to introduce that to a player, how to you know, mm. have, like, different philosophies in both, like, your world building and your design that you... I, I, it feels more universal than anything that's come since. Like, I, I love the 13 games, but I feel like they are... Like, it, I, I think it's a fair comparison to compare the original 13 to 10 and, like, see ways that, like, similar structures were in place but were not hitting the same way and weren't being communicated in the same way that made them as universal as 10 feels. Collectively, though, like, it, I wrote my notes, like, it's hard for me to separate 10 into, and I think that's even in the shit that we were saying earlier, like, I feel like seeing the end of this game, even if it's not overtly being like, okay, but, and we're gonna do another one, but, like, you know, setting the foundation for a world that makes you ponder what comes next for it, and not in, like, a general, like, I like to spend time with characters that I like, what, you know, like, the, the sort of, like, fandom give me of wanting more, but more like, you've seen... A com- it, it, it almost like an incomplete arc for a world, I guess. Like you see them overcome the mm-hmm. system, but you don't see what they do with that. Like what they do with this newfound freedom. Like you know, you know, says spirit is ours again, and we are free to determine our future now. Remembering all the things that we lost to get here, and I think that's just like why. And, and you know, we'll get into this when we get to ten two. Like I think that's why ten two as a game is like my favorite Final Fantasy. Is that like the ways that it talks about these things, like, actually, like, making you exist in a world that is not cleanly just, like, you know, moving on to the next thing. Like, it is in a... It's dealing with strife as it's trying to figure out what the future looks like for a world that has had that determined for them for so so long. And, yeah, I I think that's kind of where I sit on it broadly, is that, like, it feels like like a part one to a two-part series that did end up, like, I'm, I'm grateful that it did end up getting its sequel, and, you know, I was too young at the time to understand why it merited it, I think, and that was just, you know, I was fucking 10 years old, I don't know, like, I, I was like, it's more, more of the fucking game that I like, but now that I'm older, and, like, I, we, you know, done this, and I played it as an adult, and, like, see the ways that, like, 10 and 10 2 are two of the most, like, confident, concise pieces of Final Fantasy media, in terms of, like, 
created an arc of a universe where I feel like, you know, like you look at like the seven extended universe where it feels like Square Enix right now is just fucking making shit and throwing shit at a wall. And that is, and you know, we'll get to it later, like in the, you know, the very end of the season when we talk about all the extended Final Fantasy X universe and, you know, the prospect of Final Fantasy X three of why I'm very fearful of that because I feel like the Square Enix of now does not seem to have the clearest vision that Square Enix of early 2000s had. And mm. yeah, it makes me excited to talk about Tentu um, and talk about both like in terms of its vision of Spira as, as a place, but also like Yuna as a character and like who has to figure out what where, where she fits into all of this. And not it's not just a matter of like, oh, the system is gone. Like the people are, you know, now scattered about and need to figure out where each of them fits into this new world. And um, yeah, I'm excited for it. I will I will say before I get into my thoughts here. I I think and this is this is a very recent development. So I don't think this is I think a lot of your points hold true, but in terms of Square Enix now, I think there are parts of Square Enix that definitely are trying to figure out themselves still. Um but there are especially in recent years if you look at 14, if you look at some of the stuff that they've been doing in, in cooperation with, with platinum in terms of the near series and stuff like that. Square Enix is starting to find itself and it's starting to find itself by looking back towards the people that made a lot of this era of games, you know, things mm-hmm. like dungeon encounters was one of my standouts of the year. And that was a pet project from the battle designer of final fantasy 12. That was just like, let's dive into the nitty gritty of mechanics mm-hmm. and function over form and things like that. And I think, this is extremely recent. So I do think this is like, like within the last year or two recent, right. but I do think that company is starting to show signs of we can move forward off. I mean, when we were looking through um, the credits of this game that we're rolling there, there are a lot of names there that uh, you might recognize in future stuff. And obviously Nobora and, and Uematsu among them uh, as, as you know, Titans of, of Square Enix. Uh, but even the composers, uh, the other musicians who worked on 10 and later 10 2 have gone on to do other incredible stuff. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence that Square is trying to look back on things like 10 that have stood out. Because the other point I want to bring forward is that today, the day that we were recording this, uh, a poll came out on TV. As- Asahi? Asahi? As- Asahi? I-, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Japanese television network that... Uh, held a poll where over 50,000 users voted across Japan for their favorite games of all time. It was a mm. hundred games. And in the results, Final Fantasy X was ninth on mm. that list. The only Final Fantasy game higher than it was Final Fantasy VII at number three. And it beat out games like Final Fantasy uh, V and six. you know, mm. huge, huge games in their own right. I mean, it's, it's on a list higher than Super Mario Brothers three. Mm. <laughs> for for comparison uh and multiple other like dragon quest games and things like that 10 i think is a game that despite the fact that i don't i don't think it gets talked about that often or in the same breath as you know the greats of final fantasy 6 and final fantasy 7 and even like final fantasy 9 i hear people will talk about that more than 10 that's maybe just me having uh a cactus in my back about it but it's 
this is a game that I think has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. I think the remaster shows that where they can just spruce it up a bit and it still feels like a compelling RPG to play in the year 2021. Mm -hmm. And this is a story that I think, like you said, by itself, it's contained, it's confident. It does so much. It's got so many different, stories that it tells it it lets its characters breathe it lets them all work together as a party it uses mechanics to communicate theme and vice versa and there's so many little nuances of this game that i think us playing through the way we did i really got to appreciate in a way i hadn't before Mm -hmm. i think a lot of my appreciate appreciation for this game came from its story and its music and and its world which are all you know valid reasons to love this game but in this uh, playthrough, I just found myself in awe of the way it all comes together as as a unison, as as one mm-hmm. project. And so it does feel weird that it has a sequel. It does feel odd. But I think as we go into 10-2, the thing that I've kept thinking about is 10 is a game about destroying systems that are broken, you know, no matter what the potential cost may be. It's about breaking down the things that you know are causing pain, even if it causes you discomfort in the moment. It's, it's about having hope that even in the face of something as insurmountable as a giant beluga whale of death, (laughs) that we can overcome it together, that we can, Mm. you know, don't listen to the institutions. Don't listen to the establishment. Don't listen to the people that are profiting off of this there are ways that individually we can come together and make things happen. Mm. And that's, that's a hopeful message to have in the year 2021. But then if 10 is breaking all that down, 10 two is going to be the game about how do you build it back up Mm -hmm. and not create the same problems that you had the first time around. And I think that is the game that I'm really interested to critically examine because Mm these are both games that I, you know, we have already started playing 10 in our free time and instantly I was just struck by the difference in tone and the mm. difference in style and this reimagining of Spira, you know, previously Spira was this world of desolation where cities couldn't even exist. Really. There was maybe one that could thrive and the rest of them were just cobbling it together as best they could. And it was domineering you know there's the presence of yevin everywhere and the presence of this force this oligarch religious oligarchy just like reigning over everything and it's now we have this world that's going to be cast into new power structures into new openness to expand but also so much room for more problems to fester Mm -hmm. and a vacuum that is created by the space that yevin took up and what does that mean? Well, what does that all mean? And mm. and like, we're, how is it going to explore that? Those are the questions I'm going into tend to really looking forward to seeing how it addresses that. Because I think that those two combined can form an incredible duology of, you know, what it means to build a better world. Right. And in that sense, yeah, I am dreading getting around to the extra stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> beyond that. Because <laughs> like, if you can, if you can hit it out of the park twice, why are you trying the third time Wait, while you're ahead? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, mm. it's, you, you know, you get a 20 and you say, hit me and an ace comes up and you say, hit me again. What are you doing? <laughs> 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 uh, 
so I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting, but I think examining Final Fantasy in the way that we have, and, and to be clear, like we've, we've spoken very rosily of it, but also like there's still plenty of things in this game that I've found fault in or found that could have been done better. Or I would have liked to have seen mm-hmm. done better. Or just, I think areas that the game does fall short a little bit in trying to deliver its message. All that said, it's still definitely yep. like probably one of my favorite games I've ever played straight yeah, up. I mean, like, and that's something that like, amazing. I think is especially different than probably any, um, I mean, I think, we by the time we got through it all, like, I think we were mechanically pretty up on like The Last of Us and like you know the later Mass Effects. But um, I feel like that's something that just like I really because I mean, we even talked about this kind of like probably like I I don't know that like the Final Fantasy Ten season that we've done has had like, a lot of the same sort of like really hard critical examination of some things. Not because like I think that the game doesn't have those things that we're talking about, but it's like I gen- genuinely think more so than probably any other game that we played for the show. I think Final Fantasy Ten and Ten Two have aged very well. And like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the sort of, um, like, I guess, cultural examination of like some of the other things we have, I think 10 benefits from being otherworldly and like, not necessarily like it doesn't deal with like real world stuff, but like it's using like a very specific framing of its own to talk about these things in ways that don't have, that don't carry a lot of the same baggage. Although I do think like, you know, a lot of stuff with like the Albed, Albed racism stuff, which we got gotten to like, weird ways that it portrays some of that is, you know, a sort of, like, B-plot of things that we're, we got into, but, um, broadly, I just think Final Fantasy X feels very universal in a way, like, in a way that a lot of the other games that we've played haven't, and, mm-hmm. um, I think we, you know, we talk about, like, you know, games age fairly quickly, like, more so than most other media, like, games will feel old before most other things do, um, and I think that we've gone through, you know, however many episodes of this season of talking about Final Fantasy X, and that, like, it felt like those stopgaps of, like, things that we had to, like, really sit down and be like, oh, yo, okay, this is fucked because of this. Um, I, th- I feel like since those came fewer and farther between, speak to the fact that, no, I think the game, like, you know, we can talk about it very rosily, like, with rose-colored glasses, but I think just generally, the game's aged very well. Like, it very, you know, in a way that, most video games don't get to say 20 years after the fact. Because, like, mm-hmm. you think of, like, you know, games that were even, you know, a couple of years re- removed from that. Like, that were, you know, like, of that era. Like, you know, people talk about, like, you know, these really influential games like Super Mario 64, Ocarina of Time. Like, a lot of, the, like, you know, the systems of those games are still, you know, you know the bones of those games are usually still pretty all right. But um, broadly, like, you know, like, oh, you know, it feels like, those series have, you know, evolved in very significant ways that makes those games hard to go back to, which is why, like, I, everything I said earlier, like, I don't feel like Final Fantasy has felt like 10 and 10 to since, and I think that just kind of, you know, again, underlines that they have withstood the test of time. Yeah, even within, you know, the the entirety of Final Fantasy, these games feel like outliers. You know, they really feel different from a lot of other stuff that the series has gone on to do uh, and you can see the influences, but there's just elements of them that are just so uniquely 10 and 10 to these games have, uh, have a feel, a look and a feel mm. and a theme and just everything about them. God, it's just so impressive the way that these games come together as a whole to create, you know, a, a journey. And it, it's, it's a hallmark of, seasoned developers and fresh ideas and 
the fact that this was their launch not launch, but like their first final fantasy mm-hmm. on the PlayStation two that they let off with this. And it's clearly stood the test of time. It's, it's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to, as we move into more stuff, because this next episode will be a combination. We're going to talk about final fantasy 10 eternal calm, which is an interstitial movie that takes place between 10 and 10 two and has some backstory to it you know it's got it's got some history that we'll delve into a little some bit. behind it's, the scenes stuff that's kind of wild to talk about yeah uh i you know it, and if you are if you're playing along at home if you have the 10 and 10 to hd remaster collection that is included in the collection in mm-hmm. fact it's it's actually even helpfully like laid out so you go from 10 to eternal calm and then down to 10 to yeah. so it's all laid out in order very nice. I, I didn't even really notice that until I was having to do it myself. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, that's a nice touch square. Good job. Uh, so it's kind of the carry through. And then that'll carry us into, in the same episode, talking about the first real section of final fantasy 10 which I imagine we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about. It'll probably be two back to back lengthy episodes because we'll kind of be setting up not just, the setting of 10 2 and the media differences, which are readily apparent right from the beginning, but uh, just kind of where we're at with 10 2 and how we kind of have experienced this game in the past and stuff, you know, typical intro for the season episode. So, y'all are going to get two feature length episodes back to back here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> RIP my voice. <laughs> Uh, until we get there though, we are patreon.com slash Normandy FM. That is where we are located. If you would like to back us and help us out, uh, at any level, you will get into the backer discord where awesome people like Micah, who helped us out this week with the, the spot on the Unisphere, uh, hang out and talk about the various games we're playing. Uh, any level on there will get you into the discord. If you want to back at the next highest level, that'll get you the episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them. And at the highest level, you will get your name shout out every episode here on Normandy FM this week. That list is just the wedge of destiny, Mercedes Cluis, Meredith and Micah Mante. Thank you all so much for contributing and helping out and keeping this show going as we soldier on into Final Fantasy X-2, which I think is going to be a fun season. We have admittedly uh, gone back and forth on the the format of this, and that's probably still going to be in flux a little bit as we progress through the season and kind of get a feeling for how all this stuff is going to work out. Uh, We also have life stuff that's going to create things because this is the world (laughs) and who knows well maybe i don't know maybe we're all just gonna quarantine again for like six months (laughs) and then we can just knock all of it out (laughs) but uh well we'll be figuring out as we go and we're already like again i'm not going to tease it i'm not going to spoil it this time and and ruin it again but (laughs) it's we are already working on mapping out and thinking about what our next season after that is going to be uh, it's looking like 10 2 will not take up all of our year 2022. I'll just say that we will be moving into potentially a new thing at, at some point in 2022. And it's one that I think is going to be very exciting and uh, fun, but it's a nice way to, to close out the holidays here for us. I mean, as, a, as of our recording, we are closing out the holidays on this and we've got another episode to record pretty soon here. Cause we're kind of banking them, but 
we're moving on from Final Fantasy X into Final Fantasy X 2, and the sun's never been brighter, Ken. How do you feel? I'm fucking stoked. Best Final Fantasy. We're going to play the best Final Fantasy. It's going to be a great season, a great game, some great guests. We got it all lined up. So look forward to it here on the next episode and the next season of Normandy FM.